There's a man going round taking names And he decides who to free and who to blame Everybody won't be treated all the same There'll be a golden ladder reaching down When the man comes around Hello, my name is Holly Lewis I'm Lawson Keeney and I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to I Don't Know Why We're Doing This, where we stick to the list, for better or worse. This week is our last episode on the X-Men franchise. We have watched what is perhaps the best ending to one of these big superhero franchises that have happened so far. It's the first real ending to one of these superhero franchises. Except not really, because they made two more movies after it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's the end of that time, that timeline, essentially. Uh, we watched Logan by James Mangold. But before we get into the deep dive on that, we're going to talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Okay. I saw four movies in the cinemas this week. I'm going to start off with a movie called The Marksman. It's a thriller directed by Robert Lorenz, and it is about a rancher named Jim Hansen. Not Jim Henson. I thought that's what he was called for most of the movie. But it is, in fact, Jim Hansen. He's played by Liam Neeson. He lives on the U- the U.S.-Mexico border. And one day he's driving along the border fence and he comes across a mother and a son who are crossing. And they're being pursued by the cartel. And he intervenes, manages to save the son, but the mother is killed. And he learns afterwards that the Border Patrol people are going to deport the son back to Mexico, where he would almost certainly be killed by the cartel as well. And so he busts the kid named Miguel, who's played by Jacob Perez, out and transports him cross-country to Chicago, where his family are. And all the while, they're being pursued by the cartel. This is totally formulaic. This is another one of, of Liam Neeson just doing the same thing over and over and over again. He is better than this. I don't understand why he can't find scripts better than this. It's monotonous. It's lazy. I, I don't know why he's doing this. He, he really should be aiming higher. Like, when this whole Liam Neeson action thing started, we got good Liam Neeson action movies, you know? But... But now, I mean, he should be he should be aiming at more things like like the commuter of the last couple of years, the commuter, or what was that other one where it was like a snowplow driver? That was all right too. Not stuff like this. Not stuff like Honest Thief. They just kind of seem like the Liam Neeson movie that would be playing in another movie when they made a joke about Liam Neeson movies. Yeah. It it for for a premise as politically charged as this, it does everything it can to avoid making a point. It has only one reference, opaque as it possibly can be, to border politics in America. There is a comment that Liam Neeson makes that about the way things are right now, and that's mm. all you get, really. And the cartel people are just sort of cookie-cutter villains. Like, they're exactly what you expect them to be when you say Mexican cartel villain. Yeah. You just know exactly how this goes. There's no, There's nothing here. There's no point to it. Is the kind of thing that is sort of like built to be a poster on Netflix that you scroll past when you're looking for something to watch. Yeah. I watched The Dry. It is a mystery film directed by Robert Connolly. It's based on the Jane Harper novel of the same name. It's about an uh, Australian federal police agent named Aaron Fork. He's played by Eric Banner. His childhood friend has just died. He has killed his family and then himself. And so 
Aaron goes back to his hometown, this small town in, in the middle of country Australia, and he is asked by his friend's parents to investigate the death because they don't believe that he actually killed his family or himself. They think it was a murder. Mm. And so he, he starts to investigate what really happened. But this is complicated by the fact that he hasn't been back to the town since he was 16, 17, because most of the people in the town think that he is responsible for the death of a girl there when he was younger. This is a great whodunit. It's got lots of really good texture and has all the good red herrings and multitude of suspects that you get in good whodunit movies. The final answer was a little sudden for me. My mother has has read the book and she said that it was more fleshed out in the book than it is in the in the film, but it comes on real quick in the movie. And if I hadn't caught a single line of dialogue, kind of halfway foreshadowing who the killer was earlier on, then I would have been totally blindsided by it. it. It's got these flashbacks interspersed throughout where you find out what happened back in the 70s or the 80s or whatever it was when, when he was a young man. That stuff is actually in a lot of ways more interesting than what's going on in the present day. There's a really cool atmosphere and ambiguity there because for a lot of the movie, you really don't know what happened. And, and there is there is real, like, you don't know, could he actually have been responsible for the girl's yeah. death? That's something that the movie plays with. It's atmospheric and it's gritty. It's it's that kind of small dying town that, that, that used to be a big industry town but is now in the 21st century not viable anymore and it's on its yeah. last legs. I mean, I've I've lived in cities my whole life or on the outskirts of cities my whole life, but my grandparents lived in a town like that. And I, I went there a lot when I was uh, younger before they passed away. And that town feels very much like uh, the town yeah. that I see here in this movie. It feels real. It feels like it's captured that kind of... of Australian country town that's on its last legs. The culture yeah. of going to the pub in one of these towns and how everyone knows each other and the way that that works. Yeah, we've all at least been to a town like that mm. where it's like the pub is the main place. You go there, you get either a parmy or chips and gravy and then you go back to the motel because there's nothing else there. Mm. It's it's a good cast. Banner's good. Uh, Genevieve O'Reilly and Bruce Spence are both in it in, in these yes. good supporting turns. Is Bruce Spence the killer? No, he's the father He's the father of the, the dead man. Oh, I desperately want to see a movie where Bruce Spence plays a psycho killer. Because he'd be so good. There's also an actor named John Paulson in it, who was very good. He's not really very well known. I looked him up afterwards. He played the Australian assistant of Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible 2 in 2000. This is his first movie since... He just hasn't worked in 20 years. Apparently, when they made The Dry, someone somewhere said, I must have the Australian guy from Mission Impossible 2. Um, but yeah. And, this, and, and everyone else was like, sure. This this has done really well, box office-wise. It's one of the most financially successful Australian films ever. Even in the middle of a pandemic, its opening in Australia has been huge. Again, this is a sliding scale here. Australian films never make as much as American films do, but like it, ma it's made. Let me just double check here because I, I I looked at this last week. Yeah, it's made twelve million Australian, which is 
doesn't seem like much because it isn't when you take America into account, but coming yeah. just from an Australian release, that's a lot. And it is currently the fifth highest grossing movie of 2021 with that 10 million. <laughs> so this could definitely be a franchise. Like the books are a series. You, you get the continuing adventures of Detective Aaron Falk because he goes and solves all these different murders. You can definitely see how, how this could become, you know, every two or three years we get another one of these. Yeah. And it's good for the, the Australian film industry because this is interesting stuff. It's good writing, it's good acting, it's it's engaging in a way that I never find those kitchen sink sad people being sad dramas that we tend to make yeah. engaging. I mean, when you think about it, like, because the Australian film industry, it just can't support very many big movies or big TV shows, you know? No. It's not like America. It's not even like the UK where they can get, you know, Doctor Who or His Dark Materials off the ground. We are a, we have a population of, what, 28 million? So when you cut out the... You know, you know, the teachers and the police people and the plumbers and the architects and the accountants and everyone who, who actually does regular nine-to-five jobs, you're left with very few people to maintain an entertainment industry. Yeah. So... And we're underfunded as well, so... Yeah. So this particular type of film seems like one that, that A, could could work under the system that we, we operate in, but also B, is really interesting and ambitious, at least compared to other... Australian films. Yeah, and I mean, shit, it gives Eric Banner more work. Mm-hmm. And that can only be a good thing. Because pretty much, it seems that after Hulk, he sort of, of disappeared from a lot of Hollywood things. Like, I, I know he was in the first of the Star Trek reboots, continuation, whatever the hell that the J.J. Abrams Star Trek is. I know he was in the first one, but yeah. Yeah, you could, uh, I don't know, he was, he was, he, it was in Dirty John, that show. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was in that King Arthur movie a couple of years back. But yeah, you're right. He he never really hit in the way it seemed like he was going to hit in the early 2000s. Never hit like the way he, in the way that he should have. Who knows? Now that they're getting in the multiverse, maybe we won't just see multiple Spider-Mans. Maybe we'll see multiple Hulks. Maybe Edward Norton will pull his head out of his ass and come back. That would be fascinating. Enter the Hulkverse. Hmm. Uh, well, rather, it'd be Enter the Banniverse. I mean, really, like, it would just end up being kind of what Crisis on Infinite Earths was, where it's just, like, brief scenes that tie yeah. in all of the different movies. Well, I mean, and if if, you was, if you're thinking about it, a fight between Eric Banner's Hulk and Mark Ruffalo's Hulk and Edward Norton's Hulk, Eric Banner's Hulk is absolutely ginormous in comparison. Anyways, I don't know how we got on to talking about the MCU again when we were talking about a small Australian crime drama named The Drive. <laughs> That's on brand for the podcast, I suppose. I watched Promising Young Woman. It is a thriller with pitch-black comedic elements. It's directed by Emerald Fennell, who is primarily an actress. People would know her as playing Camilla in the most recent seasons of The Crown. It is about Cassandra Thomas, played by Carrie Mulligan. She is 30, she's dropped out of medical school, and she's in disinterested in life. And this is because when she was in medical school, her and her childhood friend were really close. Her childhood friend was uh, was raped and in front of a whole bunch of people who then, you know, filmed it and did all sorts of awful things. And she then killed herself. And this is broken... Carrie Mulligan's spirit, and she is working at this this dead end job. 
that she really only does to support herself so that she can go out on Saturday nights to clubs, to bars, pretend to be extremely drunk, and then when predators approach her and take her home and try and take advantage of her, she puts the fear of God into them. She meets a, a old classmate of hers named Ryan Cooper, who is played by Bo Burnham, and they start a, uh, a sort of fledgling romance. But in doing so, she learns what, what happened to the man responsible back for what happened back in college. And he has a great life now. He's working as a successful doctor and he's about to get married. And this causes her to kind of snap and to, to start to take revenge on the specific people, the four specific people she views as having the maximum culpability for what happened to her friend. This is so dark. It is so dark. It is unflinching and it's challenging. It's about sexual assault and how it destroys people, not just the victim of the crime itself, but their entire social ecosphere, you know, what their friends, their families, what it what it, it does to the people who love them and in this particular instance who are left behind, haunted by what they maybe could have done to help. It's an extraordinary script. It's tense and it's got a really rat-a-tat-tat kind of dialogue to it. But it's grimly amusing in the darkest possible way. This is yeah. this is funny in the most pitch-black sense of the word that you can possibly imagine. It is a strange, caustic tightrope that the movie is walking at all times, and it does it brilliantly. Carrie Mulligan in this is just a force of nature. She is at once dangerous and really a tragic character someone who is hurt and scarred on the inside who is deeply vulnerable but is at the same time the most dangerous person in the movie when she puts her mind to it Bo Burnham is great every time I see him in something I keep thinking get more get Bo Burnham in more things like he is very charming he is very funny he's very naturalistic has great chemistry with Carrie Mulligan and the movie takes their relationship in some really interesting ways that let him spread some some wings more get show yeah. off some dramatic chops and you get some other actors in it as well people like Adam Brody Chris Lowell these people who play who who who've got this sort of public image when of the characters they play as being sort of nice guys you know yeah as sort of the the harmless guys that you take home to meet your parents that kind of character and Emerald Fennel very cleverly weaponizes that public image by casting them as the sleaze bags it's a fascinating bit of of metatextual casting that yeah. does the movie so many favors uh, as it goes on isn't, isn't adam brody in the grand budapest hotel that's adrian brody oh sorry my mistake. i'm talking the oc oh okay because i was imagining adrian brody and i'm like i don't know he's a scary guy um and you get, like, these one-scene players, like Alfred Molina and Connie Britton. They show up for one scene and each, and uh, and they they just have these great juicy parts that suggest so much more than what they get to show, you know? it, it They come across as these complete three-dimensional characters that you, you figure out so much about them just watching them on screen for five minutes, and yeah. they get the opportunity to just stop the show while they they come in and and do their thing. It's just a really smart film, a really excellent script. 
and directing, um, and it was written and directed by Emerald Fennell. Um, she is an, a director that I will very much be interested to see what she does going forward. She is the showrunner on Killing Eve. She took over that after Phoebe Waller-Bridge left after the first season. So uh, this, yeah, it, it has a finale too that's just, I'll be unpacking that for a long time. It really goes places. Anyways, I, I saw Wonder Woman 1984, finally. It is, of course, a superhero film directed by Patty Jenkins, follows Diana Prince, played again by Gal Gadot. It's in 1984 now. And there is a TV swindler named Maxwell Lord, played by Pedro Pascal. He gets a mystical wishing stone created by the gods and starts causing all sorts of trouble with it. But that's not before Diana gets a chance to wish Steve Trevor back to life. He's played again by Chris Pine. But things get all out of control. This is okay. It's very messy. It's really messy. I'm not the biggest fan of of the first Wonder Woman. I I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago when you guys talked about it. I like it. It's very entertaining, but I do think it is sort of the middle of the road when it comes to superhero movies. Uh, I liked the story when I saw it the first time, back when it was called Thor. Unpack the first Wonder Woman and the first Thor movie and the general narrative structure of them. They are very similar. But... uh, that first movie was clean and it was neat and it was extremely tight in the way that it was done. You know, there was a precision. There was a precision to it that this does not have. Uh, Wonder Woman 1984 is not as sophisticated. It is frequently goofy. It is occasionally ridiculous. The wishing thing is a tangled mess that I'm not sure I ever understood the rules of and gets increasingly bizarre and absurd as time goes on, when you actually start to think about the fact that this has apparently already happened in the world that Man of Steel exists in, that starts the DCEU, where everyone is acting like this supernatural stuff is extremely, like, this is not something that's ever happened before, this is not something that we know about, but meanwhile, he's like, how would you even start to unpack that in history? Like, how would you start to make sense of this whole episode uh, that happens in this movie? If it, just as a culture, if that happened to us now, how would we deal with that in the days following and the years following? You wouldn't just... Like, it would, it would fundamentally change our understanding of the world forever. And the movie and the DCEU apparently don't understand that. The, the Steve thing is not well justified. I I don't think we needed Steve Trevor back. He doesn't really have a place in the movie. I understand why you'd want him back, because Chris Pine is very good in the role, has a lot of chemistry with Gal Gadot, and the movie... I, I, personally, Chris Pine in it is, I don't know, less interesting than in the first yeah, one. He, he, yeah, he is sort of being asked to do his greatest hits routine from the first one. Mm. It, it's part of the, the bind that the movie has found itself in, where really what they need to do is just get to the present day and resurrect him permanently. <laughs> Like, if they want to keep bringing him back, which I'm sure yeah. they will, that's what they need to do rather than the sort of tortured way that they go about it here. What I will say is... I mean, have is, him as some distant descendant or some shit. No, I don't want that Captain America thing. Again, I find it I find it real creepy, the idea of these ageless superheroes macking on the grandchildren of their significant others. Like, no. It's when you unpack it, no. It's like Grandpa, you know... It's, it's like Grandpa going to date the granddaughter of his old girlfriend, you know. It's, it's not having it. But yeah. 
they do manage to wring some some dramatic pathos out of his appearance here and about what it means and what it represents for Diana. Um, and for immortal characters indeed, in that yes. sense. I do think it misses some of the opportunities that are in front of it, but it doesn't squander those opportunities entirely. Uh, I think Cheetah as a character, played by Kristen Wiig, is a failure as a character. I don't think that it lands properly. I am not really buying her transformation into evilness that doesn't seem to play at all with what's going on. I know their justification for it is is mystical, but I don't think we spend enough time watching that descent into villainy for it to earn where it eventually goes. I also think that Kristen Wiig is not very good as the character. I'm not liking her shtick. And again, this might not just, that might not be Kristen Wiig, that might also be the script. I don't view that as a particularly well-written character, and I don't think that Kristen Wiig can pull it off. I especially don't think that she can pull off the switch to villainy that she's asked to do in the final act. I would also push back on your guys' contention that the CGI is better than Cats. It isn't, uh, in my view. I will say that the the facial CGI is better, mainly because they keep the CGI to a minimum as much as they possibly can. It's as much uh, Kristen Wiig there as, as, as you could get away with. But when you see her in long shots and her moving around and jumping from place to place, like she looks freakier than anything in Cats, in my opinion, just because the movement is so wrong. We were saying, in terms of consistency for a shorter period of time... And I'm, and I'm it saying... It doesn't freak me out as much. In terms of consistency, Cats was consistent, it just freaked you out. <laughs> Look, you never saw Cheetah's actual hand and her wedding ring, That's is all true. I'm saying. That's true. But There were no gaps. Cats had some spectacular failures. Sure, I won't argue that, but... I, I think that... What do you think of uh, Pedro Pascal? That's what I was about to get to. Pedro Pascal is fantastic in this. I think mm. he is the thing that really powers this movie above all of its failings. He is going so up to 11 with what he's doing here, but he he navigates that energy in a way that, that doesn't make it... Uh, cheesy or well it's it's cheesy but in the right way you know yeah it 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 doesn't make it um a character you can't take seriously in the way that he's doing it you can still you 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 believe him as a as a as a character more Mm. because i've been thinking about this movie and why it is set in 1984 specifically why that year and i did a bit of research into the year 1984 and found that much like the rest of the 80s it's the, the legacy of the 80s has this sort of air of prosperity, mm. but prosperity hiding actual darkness. Yeah. Crack, the crack cocaine epidemic started. The AIDS epidemic started. The Night Stalker began his killing spree. Mutually assured destruction with what's going on with the Soviet Union in America. Cold War. Like, and a lot of that stuff was centered around the year 1984 specifically. I think Maxwell Lord is sort of the best sort of exploration of that idea mm. someone who says you can have it all but will take the toll of that i would say i don't think there's much that the movie does that couldn't also be done in set in 2020 2021 uh, yeah. i i think part of the reason that it is wonder woman 1984 is because the 80s are hot now with your stranger things mm. and your multitude of stephen king adaptations we we've 
fallen as a culture fallen into a sort of neon lit synth scored nostalgia for that time period but no synth score on this one i know i was just using it as a general adjective no i know that but it's it was a surprising thing for me yeah it's it's lush and orchestral in a way that i didn't expect from hans zimmer at least modern hans zimmer yeah it is a, a fantastic hans zimmer score especially as you get to the ending the wild finale that the movie goes into which unravels totally like i it is a mess but it's an incredibly entertaining mess. The finale did really work for me. There are some really striking scenes, too, mm. with the jet and... The fireworks scene is just gorgeous. Yeah, mm. all of that sort of stuff is real striking imagery. In the end, I don't think it's as bad as some people are trying to say it is. No. I also think it's it's pretty clearly another example of the DCEU stumbling over some things that, that for whatever reason, they can't seem to get the formula right. Um... But uh, I enjoyed it. I'd watch it again, uh, even if, I, if it wasn't attached to a series that I'm already committed to watching again. But it's never better than when Maxwell Lord is on screen. And whenever he leaves, you're kind of like, eh, when's Pedro Pascal coming back? Because, let's face it, he's the man. Pedro Pascal is the man. At home, I watched Deadpool. It is a superhero comedy film directed by Tim Miller. Follows... Wade Wilson, played by Ryan Reynolds, he's a mercenary, he has life-threatening cancer, and he is recruited to join a sinister program, which is run by a man named Ajax, played by Ed Screen. Francis. And he is being tested on to become a superhero, a super soldier, but he is left disfigured and immortal and abandoned by this company that was actually just preying on him and his desperation. And so he seeks revenge. He's trying to track down Ajax so he can fix his face, which has been left scarred, because he feels like he can't reunite with his fiancée, Vanessa, played by Marina Baccarin, until then, because she wouldn't accept him as he currently looks. Deadpool as a character is just so good. Like, like this was this was something that... Ryan Reynolds et al. had been trying to get off the ground for so many years. And oh, yeah. the culmination of it here, the you know, the pure Deadpool of it all is great. It is the kind of movie that you can only make, I think, after fifteen years of regular superhero movies, you know? Mm. It 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 thrives on subverting expectations. It yeah. thrives on poking fun and being weird and being meta breaking the fourth wall things like that um the absurdist humor here is stuff that i love uh i love the 127 hours joke i love a lot of the the interplay between him and and colossus how he keeps complaining that or is that the on button smack he keeps complaining that the studio wouldn't give them enough money for a more important x-man things like that uh, I love the line where he it's in his rampage segment and he's there to kill or get information from this woman and he's like It's just confusing. Is it sexist to hit you? Is it is it more sexist to not hit you? I mean the line gets real blurry. <laughs> I love that bit so much. You, you, you can tell it's a passion project from You can tell. Is. You can tell. I mean that was the, that that whole leaked previous footage thing that was Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, not put out by Ryan Reynolds. Yeah. Uh, but there's a vein of seriousness running through it, though. Oh, yeah. Especially in the relationship stuff. There's an emotional truth 
to what the movie does with Deadpool as a character in his personal life and the way Reynolds plays it as well. It's a, it's a smaller scale than the other X-Men movies. It's got room for jokes. The, the plot is not the point here. The, the point is the characters. The point is the interplay between the characters. It's got a great script, but it's also got a real improv feel. Like you get the impression that a lot of this was Reynolds spitballing on set. You know, figuring yeah. things out as he went along. It is built on him, on his, on the blast of personality that he hit, that he is as this character every time that he's on screen. And the supporting cast is also very good and very funny as well. Uh, it's just a real. It was. It was a. Um, it was a risk for them to make, but it paid off so brilliantly. Deadpool Absolutely. and Deadpool Two are the two highest grossing X Men movies. Full stop. And it makes perfect sense as to why. What do you think of the score for this movie by Junkie XL? I think it's great. I I didn't notice it. I, I think it's Junkie XL's best work, personally. I, I, I will say, Jean, if I don't bring up the score, it means that I didn't notice it, so... Yeah, fair enough. If you ask me that question, that tends to mean that I won't have a response. Fair enough. I watched X-Men Apocalypse... A regular superhero movie directed by Brian Singer. There is an ancient mutant named Apocalypse from off in ancient Egypt. He's played by Oscar Isaac. He considers himself a god because of the time that he was born in and the way that he was treated then. But he's been in hibernation for thousands of years and now he's woken up and he's going to end the world and cleanse it and, and rule over the ashes of it. And to do that, he has recruited four assistants, four horsemen, mutant uh, assistants that he will... Uh, use and lead to help him accomplish this goal. Magneto ends up being one of them because they find something for Michael Fassbender to do in these two movies, these last two X-Men movies. The new cast is the cast here, the Xavier, the the uh, McAvoy Fassbender cast, and that kind of automatically means less interest from me. I realised watching again these last two X-Men movies, Apocalypse and Dark Phoenix, how much the new cast paled in comparison to the original for me. Not just because of the absence of people like Ian McKellen and, and Patrick Stewart, these these actors that I really like, but I, I noticed this time what a hole Wolverine leaves when he's not in the movie. He is so important as an anchor point and as a, as a through line, and he, I mean, the, these movies miss him like they would miss a limb. Also... You know, all of the interplay between Storm and Cyclops and Jean Grey, there's the stuff with with the, the X-Men as this sort of elite paramilitary force that you get in, in the original ones. Uh, it just, I, I realised, I already knew it, but it really underscored for me watching these movies this time that the original cast is my X-Men cast. It's, it's not what's going on here. There's no meat here. There's no story really the story is very thin uh apocalypse wakes up he recruits a few mutants he tries to end the world there's there's not really much going on here certainly not enough to justify the actually i think longest runtime one of the longest runtimes for an x-men film and it you know it minimizes the importance of days of future past it repeats the same argument that it had in, in days of future past it kind of undoes all of the the good and the importance that came of the finale of Days of Future Past, and it just sets things back to the status quo, and we go through the motions again, and, and that annoyed me. You have a lot of characters here who just don't need to be here. Magneto doesn't need to be here. He has no 
impact on the story really at all. You could have just filled his spot in the Apocalypse team with any number of other mutants. Moira McTaggart is back for some reason, even though she literally does nothing. Like, nothing at all. Like, you could just remove her from the script and nothing would have to change. Uh, why is Stryker here? Why is he turning up for some reason? Why is Storm here, you know? She's instantly forgettable. She don't, She Again, like Magneto, it could have been anyone. It's really just a way for her to find herself inserted into the continuity so she can return for Dark Phoenix. Uh, Apocalypse is a cool character. The idea of him is cool, but I don't think he's well utilised. The movie is over, half over, by the time he actually starts to engage with the X-Men in any way. And I mean, like I said, it's way too long. It's almost two and a half hours. The finale is really drawn out. The stuff that I did like was all of the mutant teen hijinks that are going on with the Xavier uh, students. It made me wish that you that we had gotten just like a pure teen comedy set in that like bre- the, the, the Breakfast Club in the X Mansion. Exactly. Like I mean, they could have made Jubilee an actual character that mm. way. They had the chance this time. Mm. And as we mentioned in the deep dive last week. I adore the Quicksilver sequence in this, oh, yeah. especially the use of Sweet Dreams, which is such a great quintessential 80s song. Oh, yeah. If anyone would like to watch it, it's available for streaming on Disney Plus and Foxtel Now in Australia. I watched Deadpool 2, another superhero comedy oh, just movie. Just before we get to Deadpool, to Deadpool 2, I really like the monologue that Apocalypse does where he says, No more superpowers. I, I just love that whole monologue. Put a little clip of that in there. No more swords. No more weapons. No more systems. No more. No more superpowers. And also, we get a really interesting uh, Stan Lee cameo in that sequence as well. And that the woman he's with is his wife. I forgot to mention yeah. the greatest Stan Lee cameo of all time in Deadpool, where he plays the DJ at a strip club. Hey, coming onto our stage right now. Give it up for chastity. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I next watched Deadpool 2, superhero comedy movie again, directed by David Leach. Deadpool is here protecting a teenage mutant named Russell Collins. Didn't write down the actor's name for Russell Collins. I... Julian Dennison. Well, there you go. Thank you very much. You're welcome. He's escaped this kind of mutant conversion therapy that is being run by this religious fundamentalist group, which is very clearly, you know, sort of a an allegory for gay conversion therapy and, and all of that awful stuff. But there is a, a guy from the future named Cable, played by Josh Brolin. He is pursuing Russell with the intent of killing him because Russell turns out to be a villain in the future and uh, causes a whole lot of grief. Uh, this lacks the freshness of the first. It just couldn't hit in the same way because it wasn't as much of a surprise anymore. You know, the thrill of seeing Deadpool on screen in all of his glory is is not as great when you're seeing it the second time. Uh, what works still really works. The script is excellent. It's very well written. And Reynolds is, as he was in the first, a whirlwind of charisma, of energy. It's he owns this movie in the way that he owns that first movie. He owns this character in a way that, you know, 
he's just there are those characters that you see actors play that you're just like well that had to be that actor that couldn't have been yeah. anyone other than that actor and this is Reynolds absolutely that character for Reynolds I, I think to the point where whenever I read a Deadpool comic it's his voice that I hear uh, it's bigger in scope this time. You get a lot bigger set pieces. The action is, is generally improved. You have David Leach directing now, who uh, was involved in the first John Wick movie and directed Atomic Blonde, starring Charlize Theron. So he has action bona fides that he uses to great success here. And you get more dramatic elements this time as well. It has a darker story. It has a more intellectual story i i mean it sounds weird to use the word intellectual when it when you're talking about deadpool but it is talking about things like abuse and the cycles of abuse and yeah. stuff like conversion therapy and and stuff like is a villain a villain if they're at what point does someone i, I don't know it's it's complicated to unpack but the sort of villainous trajectory of russell yeah. is discussed in a really interesting way and also deadpool's main trauma at the start of this film going through mm. it and and how he deals with that is in itself a reference to one of deadpool's major relationships in the comics his relationship with you know death and dying yeah. i found myself laughing more in this one than i did in the first maybe it's just i i don't know what it was but it just the sort of absurdist humor struck me yeah which cut did you watch mm. i watched the extended cut oh i I'm of the opinion that the extended cut has some good moments, but there are some problems with the ADR on Deadpool. Like, when he's got the mask on, his you can tell that his face is moving and saying completely different words than you are hearing, and it's of a different, like, audio quality as well sometimes. Like, the part where he's standing outside the mansion with the... With his phone over his head doing that whole romantic comedy shtick. That scene, I think, goes on for a little too long. I'm of the opinion that when there's an extended cut of a comedy movie, they usually drag a joke, kicking and screaming to the end. And it it happens a fair bit here. One thing I really liked, um, the two, two movies actually, Get Smart, the, the Steve Carell movie, had a feature on the DVD and the Blu-ray where it was one of those, like, when you see the symbol pop up, click enter oh, on yeah. your remote. I remember those. And it's just... I liked those. And it's like, when it popped up, it would just cut to all of the alternate takes of the improv for that particular joke. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> and I miss... It's sad that those went the way of the dodo. And then in Anchorman, both Anchorman movies on the DVD and the Blu-ray, they just had so many alternate takes that they just yeah. re-edited the entire movie. Exactly. And made a different movie. Yeah. <laughs> See, those are the only situations where I could accept that kind of thing. But for Deadpool 2, and it's more of a problem with the 2016 Ghostbusters, but it's just a thing that I notice. I love the bit with Juggernaut. Hmm. Everything with Juggernaut, I think, is fantastic. Voiced by Ryan Reynolds. Yeah. I love the, the line where he said, Julian Dennison's character says... So you wear that on your head so that your brother can't read your mind. And then Juggernaut says, yeah, but he's in a wheelchair. So fair's fair. Oh, it's Ethan Stevens. <laughs> yeah. Even Stevens. And it's, it's like, because... that is the first time in a movie that people have actually accepted the fact that, yeah, Juggernaut is Xavier's stepbrother. Mm. Like, that is 
the thing with that character, and here's a, I enjoy here's that. A, here's something. Step Brothers, the movie, remade with Patrick Stewart and Vinnie Jones. <laughs> As Charles Xavier and Juggernaut. Who puts their balls on whose drum set? Uh, Charles Xavier gets himself out of the chair and rubs his balls on Juggernaut's drum set. I also love the music where Juggernaut comes in. The, the dramatic choir, yeah. Yeah. That's the best piece of music in the entire film. The rest is just... Bleh. No, no. The Bond-esque opening yes. oh, ashes. sequence. Yeah, ashes. Celine Dion. He let beauty come out of ashes. He let beauty come The, the licensed soundtrack, too, is is great. All of the different songs mm. that they use, Take On Me. I mean, in the first movie, they had some excellent yeah. needle drops. Or like, the ending credit song being We Belong by Pat Benatar. Like, yes! That's, that's so goofy, but I love it. That song slaps. It does. I did, like, just watching these two movies over again. Because the first time I saw both of those movies, it was still Fox. And yeah. so watching these these movies over again, knowing that Deadpool is going to be in the MCU, I was like, how is this going to work? Just how is it going to work? <laughs> like, <laughs> I can't see it. Like, I can see it if he's doing his own standalone movies like he is mm. it here, and it's sort of only tangentially connected to the X-Men. But if they ever bring him into, like, I know there's been, like, Ryan Reynolds saying that he would love to do, like, a, um, I think a, a Spider-Man team-up. Because they team up so much in the comics, yeah. so like, I find it really like I would be fascinated to see that. But at the same time, like having Deadpool that character interact with any of the previously established characters in the MCU seems yeah. fascinating to me. I did read somewhere that um, Ryan Reynolds said that before the Fox acquisition, I might just be making this up. I feel certain I read this somewhere when the when Deadpool two came out that the plan for Deadpool three was. Uh, going to be a Wolverine Deadpool road trip with Hugh Jackman mm. back. Um, I I would like to see that still. I would yeah, like absolutely. to see... Just road tripping through the MCU. Yeah. There, there's an interesting comic that I've got in an omnibus, and it's right next to my desk, and it's Deadpool and Carnage like going up against each other because they're both so chaotic, they just hit the same wavelength with each other. And Deadpool can find the pattern in the killings that Carnage is doing, which has no pattern. And that that infuriates Carnage to no end. And I would love to see that movie with <laughs> with Ryan Reynolds' Deadpool and Woody Harrelson's Carnage from the next Venom movie. I think that would be great. Lastly, this week, I watched Dark Phoenix, X-Men Dark Phoenix. John's favorite X Men. Is movie. it really my favorite X Men movie? But I really, really love it. What? Okay, thank God for that because I. What is your favorite one, John? <sighs> Honestly, probably 
dead the first Deadpool, if I'm gonna be honest. I think just it encapsulates so much about the character and it issues some of the more annoying traits from the comics that it and it's just such a well put together movie from the music, the editing, the acting and everything. Yeah, but, we can have a more detailed conversation yeah. ranking these in the in the deep dive, but I, I do find it kind of hard to rank Deadpool along with the other X-Men movies as if they are it is so the same. Separate. <laughs> yeah. They are so different. It's like, I don't know, ranking you know, a Western alongside a, a romantic comedy or something. It, it just, mm. they are so operating, they are trying such different things that... Mm. Yeah. Anyways, this is a superhero movie directed by Simon Kinberg. The X-Men are in space rescuing astronauts and they come across a mysterious energy field which is absorbed by Jean Grey, played by Sophie Turner. She loses control of her telepathic powers and she finds out about hidden memories that Charles Xavier has blocked out uh, about her abandonment by her father, who Charles had told her was dead. And she freaks out causes a whole bunch of carnage that has the government and the X-Men after her. But she's also being pursued by the alien Vuk, uh, played by Jessica Chastain, the uh, leader of the last remaining uh, group of her species who are looking to harness that mysterious energy so they can colonize Earth. Uh, this is an anticlimactic end to the X-Men franchise. It's entertaining, but it is workmanlike. I, I don't think that there's nearly enough exploring Dark Phoenix and exploring the aliens, it needed a lot more runway than it gives itself. Yeah. Well, I read that those aliens were initially meant to be the Skrulls. Yeah. Before they were sort of swooped up by Marvel. Yeah, the, and the merger as well sort of had a deep effect on the edit of the movie that we have. Well, the, the apocalypse did really poorly at the box office comparative to what had come before. And this movie had a, was apparently meant to be a two-part story. It was meant yeah. to be two movies. And it was going to go much more into the cosmic side of, of the original Dark Phoenix storyline. But after that failure of, of Apocalypse, Fox grew really, really cold on the idea of the, the prequel X-Men stuff. Yeah. And this ended up being forced down into one film. And the result is, in my opinion... Uh, real damage to the emotional impact that the movie had had the capability to uh, inflict if it was given the time and the care that it deserved. Uh, there are pacing problems as a result, as a result of trying to fit this big story down into, into one little uh, two-hour film. Uh, Xavier here is an arrogant arsehole. It comes on really suddenly. Um, it's It's... Again, something that would have been better if we'd seen that start to be established before it got to the point that it starts with in this film. But certainly Harley's fear of telepaths seems well justified in the context of, of this particular uh, iteration of the Xavier character. It has this some really cheesy elements to it, this hokey X-phone. They've got a direct line to the Oval Office, like, and... and the, okay, the you can't tell me that if there was a super-powered team of people, that you wouldn't contact them all the time to, you know, oh, yeah, but fix it's, these it's, major problems. It's very 60s Batman that, oh, the Bat phone's ringing, Commissioner Gordon is calling, you need something. Like, it's it's 
it's goofier and more cartoonish than a lot of what's been going on in this. Well, this is because Xavier recently. has tried to make these inroads into politics in Washington and is trying desperately to prove to everybody that mutants are I've got no problem with that. All I've got a problem with is the very special X phone that <laughs> both sides of the equation have. If they were just calling the landline at the mansion and asking to be transferred into Xavier, I wouldn't have a problem with it. But <laughs> but the fact that they do evoke that kind of, of campy 60s Batman thing while at the same time trying to be so deadly serious elsewhere... It feels weird. Shine the X signal. Yeah. It seems like scheduling was the greatest villain for X-Men Dark Phoenix, given how the cast enters and exits the movie so randomly. Quicksilver sprains an ankle or something at the end of the first act and just doesn't appear again, like, at all, except for a single shot at the end where he says a single line to remind us that, hey, Quicksilver's in this movie. He hasn't been in it for an hour and a half, but he was. Magneto only turns up halfway through. There is another significant early exit of a of a long-running character that plays very much like that performer saying i would like very much not to be asked back if you make another one of these yeah the, the contracts were up after apocalypse so everything had to yeah. be renegotiated uh so certainly you, you can see what a clause of that specific contract was but it's a waste of jessica chastain who gets nothing to do and it's a pity because she is one of my favourite actresses. She is probably, with the exception of, of Meryl Streep, my favourite actress. So I, I always... I mean, that makes perfect sense to me, the Meryl Streep thing. Because mm. she basically is Ian McKellen, but a woman. Mm. I, I, there's some good stuff here, though. It is generally entertaining, if rushed and shallow. The action is decent. You get some cool, creepy images of the aliens lurking around the place and the way that they sort of approach the house at the beginning of the movie out I of the darkness, stuff like that. The Hans, I think it's that bit's filmed exceptionally. The Hans Zimmer score is very good, but it leaves dangling threads that mm. irritate me as an obsessive compulsive. Uh, <laughs> the fact that the end of this movie doesn't cleanly line up with the end of Days of Future Past, that something has to have happened in the interim for us to get to that point, very much annoys me. Um... I have to say, though, I think this movie gets a lot of credit from me because it's the first time I've actually given a shit about how Cyclops feels in any given moment. Mm. When Cyclops says to Magneto, if you touch her, I'm going to fucking kill you. That really made an impact on you guys, didn't it? Every single time we talk about Dark Phoenix, you always bring that up. That is the first and last time I have actively given a shit about what Cyclops is feeling. All right. It's available for streaming on Disney Plus and Foxtel now in Australia, if anybody is interested. Anyways, that's me done for the week. What have you guys been watching? I know you've followed my recommendations on a, at least a couple of films, so I'm looking mm -hmm. forward to hearing on about three. it. On three. On three. Yes, we haven't yes. told you about the other one, but Harley okay. will go first. Okay, so first off, we have watched The Empty Man, which is a... Cosmic horror story yes. mixed noir <laughs> detective tale. It is not what the trailer said. Mm -hmm. Where a an ex cop, his friend's daughter has disappeared. Yeah, and it's connected to this urban legend called the Empty Man. Lawson's already uh, talked about seeing this one, and I really liked it. Particular moments were incredibly striking, like that 
bit that I filmed and showed yeah. you, put on sent onto our group text. Uh, yeah, well, all of those people are moving at the same time. That was that that was a situation where this is a movie where the main character makes all of the right decisions. Like in that moment, the guy says, "Nap, I'm going." Yeah, and it's like absolutely, but like. That that for, that opening twenty minutes also is like really yeah. tight and really scary. Yeah, that's a short mm, film. Man. That's a short film in like, and of itself. I mean, those monks are leaving that place for a goddamn reason. <laughs> but like when it when it just starts when it's standing there in the distance in the snow and then it just starts sprinting yeah. right at her. Like, mm. I love how every time it cuts back to her, it's just a it's a little bit closer. And it's just a perfectly edited little sequence. What what I like so much about this is that noir mixed with cosmic horror. Yeah. There's this prevailing sense of immense dread uh, that comes over you when you're watching it. And you can tell that it's not going to end well. Yeah. You just know. Like, the moment he picks up the bottle on the bridge, it's just like, you're done. Yeah, and it's, it's one of those, like urban legend things where there is no out like the little rhyme bullshitty thing that gets you to the point of being haunted by this thing there's no way of fighting against it this isn't freddy krueger where it's got a personality and you can fight against it it's not like jason Voorhees where you can actually try to put him in the ground you can try and escape you can try to escape it's extremely lovecraftian this will get you no matter what it's like the grudge but you opt in yeah and one of the best things about it is that I compare what's happening with this detective character to if a fish from a small pond tried to perceive outside of it that he is so small yeah. that him trying to perceive the nature of the empty man or even what what it could be is just too big for him to really comprehend or battle in any sense this is not something you fight this is not something you survive this is something that happens to you. you it's something that happens to you it's it's to talk about that metaphor it's a fish trying to perceive what that shadow that's being cast over the the pond is it doesn't it's know like, what a plane is it's got it's no like concept that, of it it's like what that chief police says that chilling line you can't indict the cosmos mm. i loved that bit because to me i was just sitting there like why don't we bring a civil action against the empty man someone go up to that mountain and drop off a, a letter to that skeleton and say i'm gonna see you in court it's like like that that guy that convicted criminal who tried to sue god because mm. he was baptized and and um it's like he argued that uh that the baptism was, in essence, a contract in which God promised to protect him from evil, and he did not. No. <laughs> that guy has a fundamental misunderstanding yeah. of what baptism is. But it's a neat, it's a neat strategy. But then the court threw it out because God was not a resident of the particular state. <laughs> yeah, fa- <laughs> fair enough. Skadoosh. I yeah. mean, they couldn't locate an address, so they couldn't serve the indictment. Yeah. It's, it's like God is a resident of technically hey, surely, surely everywhere. Surely you could just take it to any church. Mm. You know, God's house and whatnot. Yeah, but he, this... he owns multiple properties. 
<laughs> he owns multiple properties. What, he's, the, checked in he's the, the world's most. He's the world's largest landowner. He is technically. Um, I really like this as well. The last god, what is it? Forty minutes at least is batshit insanity, and I love it. Like, there's a point in which this movie actively stops caring if you understand or <laughs> yes, not. I know, <laughs> and just says, you know what? We're just going to get weird with it. If you're on board, welcome. Uh, there are drinks in the luxury cabin, but if you are not on board, you're coming anyway. I want to get off Mr. Toad's wild ride, please. There's no getting off Mr. Toad's wild ride. And that score, the way that they start to pull in, like, the sort of the choir at the end, like that yes. that track um, where sentence is served that ends mm. the movie. Uh, like, ugh. It's a... See, see, yeah. I feel like this movie was so thoroughly mishandled mm. by the marketing department because it was at the end of the whole Fox thing and it, COVID. But, so this movie didn't nearly get the focus that it deserved from the marketing people who marketed it as following the teenagers. Yeah, they marketed it as like sort of a Candyman kind of... They marketed it like the Bye Bye Man, yeah, or whatever the hell, yeah. uh, or the Slender Man, yeah. which is which is not what this is. Not remotely. This is this is fundamentally different. different. Yeah, Stephen Root was also fascinating in this mm. in a small role. I always love seeing him appear in shit. Uh, we also watched Tenant, which I will talk about. Yes. So Tenant is a Christopher Nolan movie. It follows a character aptly named the protagonist and his emergence into a timey-wimey, inverted, bullshit, you know, organization called Tenet. It brings him into conflict with a character called Andre Sator, played by Kenneth Branagh, who is a time terrorist, essentially, who wants to basically kill collapse everything in on itself because if he can't have it no one can the fuck is this movie (laughs) i mean i enjoyed it i thought some of the experiments with the structure of a film and with character were very interesting but it is messy in a way that christopher nolan isn't usually the main character who i'll just get the imdb up hold on i have to say naming your character protagonist is about as wanky as it gets i don't gets. think he named them they just never said his name so that's yeah. how he's credited in the credits no one ever calls no, him just... hey protagonist let's go out for a beer but you you don't using the terms like calling the enemy combatants antagonists and it's because character is the, the word focus protagonist of the movie. so often. I don't know. It just feels a bit. It, the movie is basically yes, Chris, just a music video. We get it. It's like yes, Chris, we get it. This is a fictional story. But I think John David Washington does a good job in this role. He is dead-eyed when he needs to be, and is charismatic when he has to be. Robert Pattinson. Good. Robert Pattinson is the best character in this film as Neil. Well, he's, he's the, only the only one that gets to display any kind of personality. <laughs> Yeah, other than Kenneth Branagh as Andre Sator, who is just evil. He's just this incredibly bad 
person. He's barely a person. He's more like a monster. It's like a shark swimming through this film. But in, unlike a shark, he can swim backwards when he gets inverted, which is the main selling point of this film, where you've got events happening backwards. You've got some people happening backwards. And that's where a lot of the interest lies. A lot of this movie was practical, and it shows. You've got actors acting backwards, which is fascinating and must have blown a few people's minds as they were trying to choreograph a fight scene like that. You got the whole plane crash thing, which was absolutely legit in every sense of the term. They actually crashed an actual plane into an actual hangar because Christopher Nolan can do that. The ending of this movie needed to have less people in it. Didn't need to be this giant battle. I feel like it would have been better served and would have been more cogent if it was four people going in trying to infiltrate this place that Andre Sator has set up as this giant death trap. Because everyone's wearing masks. Everyone's wearing masks and And it's so very hard to track. You cannot... There's people wearing blue armbands and red armbands. The blue ones have been inverted, the red ones have not. But it's just like... Gah! It's difficult to follow. And the sound mixing is shit. Bad. It's shit. We watched it with subtitles. Yeah. Because we heard that that was necessary. And yes, it was in fact necessary. Because the sound mix is just all over the show. When shop. it's not an action scene, it is like... Christopher Nolan's ASMR video. It's so quiet. It's weird having Kenneth Branagh speak in a Russian accent, essentially whispering nihilism to me. I did enjoy Kenneth Branagh in this. I've never seen him play a God's Honest Monster before. Usually it's like Gilderoy Lockhart, where he's got a little bit of charm, and he's like, he's the funny bad guy in Chamber of Secrets. But no, Mm. in this, he's an actual complete piece of shit. There's no charm in him. He's just awful. He's just an awful person. He's an abusive monster. But Do I think Tenant was worth opening in cinemas? No, I don't think for so. For the scale of the visuals? Sure. But for the sort of disjointedness and bad audio mix, probably not. No. It certainly wasn't worth getting into a tizzy over. No. That's for sure. We also watched... A movie at cinemas this week. Yes, this movie has to be seen on a s- cinema screen. Yeah, we watched Shadow in the Cloud. Shadow in the Cloud, Lawson talked about last mm-hmm. week. It is the story of Lieutenant, not Lieutenant, uh, Flight Officer Maud Garrett, uh, who gets onto a plane carrying a sort of like box thing. A very sensitive piece of cargo. Yeah, it's top secret, so nobody's supposed to know about it. Uh, she gets stuck in the turret because the men are misogynists, and she gets stuck in there for the majority of this film. And there's a gremlin uh, on the plane. There's a gremlin on the plane. Yeah, no problem, dude. I'll get rid of it. No, oh no, I just made my last payment. Oh. Uh, we talked about all that setup last week. I adored this. This is exceptional. It, it, it is so stylish. The score is remarkable. The colors in this movie. Yes, the lighting. In the sort of like imagine spot moments. I love those. Where Maud is sort of trying to picture what's going on up in the rest of the plane is phenomenal. The 
this is a, a fantastic Chloe, Chloe Grace Moretz performance. She is given the opportunity to just do so much. And it wouldn't have worked if they got someone who couldn't act like her. This movie is riding on her being likable and her carrying this film for the majority. Because for the majority of the film, she's all we're seeing. Hmm. She's the only person yeah. we're seeing. And she has such a fierceness yeah. in this movie that it's so awesome to see. You do have to turn your brain off to reality. Because she's got those Nathan Drake fingers that can hold on to shit for so oh, long. That that bit where her finger got bent? That, ugh, that was a visceral reaction for me. But there were like several twists Yeah. in this. And they come at you hard and fast, so you gotta be on your toes. And the emotion of it is very honest. Yeah. In that regard, too. The the effects are great. Mm. The ending. Oh, yeah. you love it to see it. It takes place all in the turret until suddenly it doesn't anymore. <laughs> mm. And then it goes. Oh, so wild! I loved it. I loved it. And this was great. That. Uh, um, that foot, that real life documentary footage in the, the end credits, credits yeah. that was brilliant. That was a brilliant cap for the movie because it just goes to prove everything that the film is saying. See, between this and The Empty Man, can we agree now that when I tell you you have to see a movie, it's for good cause? Yes. Yes. Then again, I, you also I suggested that, that we I had was... to watch Scream with you, so. It's different from nominating something. To, like, when I suggest you see something extracurricularly that we're not going to be right. doing an episode on, it's not. It's because it's something like that. Yeah. Hmm. I I also knew I was going to love it right from the opening. Mm. With yeah, the, the little like animated a, thing. The little animated <laughs> thing. That was fantastic. This is such a stylistic film. I cannot wait to see it in HDR on 4K. Um, it is going to look great. If it is out of 4K. Because it will look stunning. I cannot wait to watch this again. I cannot wait to watch it with my mom. She's going to love it. Do you guys just go by yourself? Yeah. Yeah. This was fantastic. This is our short segment, Save Me From Smallville, where we talk about the scary shit we've seen in the Superman origin story TV show, Smallville. Not a lot to get through here, but something... I didn't expect to see, certainly, is people getting tortured in a Chinese gulag. Teenagers, mind you. Okay. Well, a teenager and two men in their 20s. Yeah, you don't expect to see it. Also, there was, like, a sword fight? Oh, also, in the episode before that, there was animal abuse. Yeah, that too. Which, you know, don't like to see it, but... Hey, this dog actor? Great. The one who played, uh, Clarky. Yeah. Brilliant yeah. dog Great. acting. Great dog. Brilliant. Cute dog, too. So, now we're going to play for you the trailer to Logan. Logan. We got ourselves an X-Men fan. Maybe a quarter of it happened. And not like this. In the real world, people die. Logan. I don't want to talk about it. Logan. Just stop. Be careful. I need the girl. Buckaroo. Go get him.
No. No. And we're down. like you. I am not whatever it is you think I am. She needs our help. Someone will come along. Someone has come along. This is what life looks like. People who love each other. A home. You should take a moment. Feel it. You still have time. That was the theatrical trailer for Logan. It's a superhero western directed by James Mangold and is set in the year 2029. Mutants are on the brink of extinction, the last of their kind having been born 25 years earlier. Professor Charles Xavier, played by Patrick Stewart, the most powerful telepath in the world, has begun to suffer from dementia, and in his confusion has lost control of his powers, killing several X-Men and effectively disbanding the group. He lives now in an abandoned industrial building on the US-Mexican border, under the care of Logan, played by Hugh Jackman, whose days as the immortal Wolverine are long past. His healing abilities are failing him, and he suspects the cause is the adamantium bonded to his skeleton all those years ago, now poisoning him from the inside. Angry and world-weary, Logan is working as a chauffeur, trying to save enough money to buy a boat and retreat to the middle of the ocean with Xavier, where he plans to kill himself with an adamantium bullet he has obtained for that specific dark purpose. He's unmoved when approached by a panicked woman, begging him to transport a mute girl named Laura, played by Daphne Keene, to the US-Canadian border. His efforts to ignore the situation are disrupted, though, when he learns the girl is a mutant, created in a lab by a sinister corporation named Transigen. Possessing healing abilities and bone claws just like Logan, she has escaped from Transigen's testing laboratory, where they have been conditioning her and other children into becoming super-soldiers. Left with no other option, Logan and a now barely lucid Xavier set out on a cross-country road trip to transport Laura to safety, pursued the whole way by Transigen's cheerfully sadistic head of security, Donald Pierce, played by Boyd Holbrook. So before we get too deep into this, why don't we all go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts on what we each thought of Logan. You ready, Bichon? Yep. Three, two, one, go. This is a comic book film like no other. This is dark, grim, bloody, violent, and excellent. It's just a brilliant film overall. You've got great performances from the whole cast, and yeah, it's really good. All right, Harley, you ready? Yep. Three, two, one, go. Another fantastic uh, Wolverine outing from James Mangold as director, he seems very interested in making his films with Wolverine in them, you know, sort of genre films. As soon as we left the cinema watching this for the first time, I said, I kind of don't want to watch it again because of just how sad it made me feel. And really, it is a relentless experience of misery. And you put that on the on the poster. 
a relentless experience of misery. <laughs> Great film! In the best way possible. Great film, but it is relentless. Alright. Okay. You got me? 30 seconds, starting in 3, 2, 1. I love this movie. I loved it more watching it this time. Uh, noticing more, certainly watching it in sequence with all of the others so closely. It hit me emotionally in a way that it didn't the first time. I think it's extraordinary performances from Hugh Jackman and Patrick Stewart. It is its own thing. And this was the other point, other than Days of Future Past, where they had the opportunity to end the franchise in a really neat way. Stop. But then we wouldn't have gotten your beloved Dark Phoenix, would we, John? I know you're taking the piss out of me, but I don't care. Hey, I like Lex- X-Men Last Stand, so... We, everyone gets one. Nah, people can love what they want. Dark Phoenix's greatest sin for me is complicating the continuity at the end with no way of resolving it. Mm. If, like, by the time it was released, they knew that they weren't making another. They should have re-edited the ending to keep yeah. Jean Grey from dying. Oh, the the ending was already re-edited from what they previously were planning, so, you know. But that's a discussion about Dark Phoenix. People can love whatever movies they want. They don't even have to justify it to me. But... For the, for Logan, this is the end of the timeline. Mm-hmm. This is sitting yeah. right at the end. Like Lawson said, it's 2029, about nine years, you know, eight years to go till then. It's interesting watching it the way that they, there is this sort of dystopian feel to everything that's going on. Yeah. There's this sort of feeling of doom that's overlaying the whole film, everything that you see there. But when you actually stop and think about the world at large that's presented in the movie, it's actually not that different from the world that we're no. currently living in. I mean, there's a brief throwaway line on the radio at the start that it's 2029 and something about the polarized caps. Um, but if that line hadn't been there, I think like you, you could just watch that assuming it was the present day. Yeah. What, what gives it its, its sort of dark, moody quality is the characters. It, it's not necessarily a dystopian world. But it's a it, it's a dystopian story for these characters who we've yeah. seen in such happier, more colourful and and cheerful times. No, absolutely. Yeah, because Transigen has done something that no one has been able to do before. Actually, put an end to new mutations. Mm-hmm. I think it's worth taking this opportunity to nip something in the bud. I know that some people try and say that that whole no new mutant has been born in 25 years thing proves that Logan takes place in a different continuity from the rest of the movies. I say it does not because, A, we haven't really seen anything in the near present day in the Dark Phoenix Apocalypse timeline after X-Men 1, 2, 3, the Wolverine, etc. were erased. So it's perfectly possible that that could be happening when we see that brief snippet of it at the end of X-Men Days of Future Past. But also, if you think about the timeline of it, 25 years before 2029 would place that in 2004. And then you have to add another 11 or 12 years on that because mutant powers only start to manifest in puberty. So you are then looking at 2015, 2016. Add, Add another year or two while scientists are confirming that this is not an anomaly and that this is something that is going to continue and that mutants are not being born anymore, and you end up in 2018, 2019, well after any of those movies are set. Yep, absolutely. So the timeline all makes sense. 
Yes, for once. <laughs> Except when you throw new mutants into this hole. Well, new mutants you can, like, new mutants could very well take place in 2000 or in 2005 or 2010. Yeah. Like, it's sort of, the isolation of that film is, yeah. it's saving grace when it comes to the continuity. It's its greatest strength in that regard. Hmm. Although you said that the world at large is still functioning, but it is post-apocalyptic for mutant kind. Yes. Logan was inspired by the story Old Man Logan, which is a Marvel Comics alternate sort of timeline story. It's Mark Millar, isn't it? Pardon? That's Mark Millar, isn't it? I believe so. In Old Man Logan, a bunch of the villains got together and decided, we always fail fighting our own heroes. So how about we switch it up a bit? So Mysterio, the Spider-Man villain, who's known for creating illusions, goes to the X-Mansion and casts an illusion on Wolverine, causing him to go berserk and believe that all the people in the X-Men mansion are villains that are attacking him. So he ends up butchering all of the X-Men. Other things happen to throw the world into a post-apocalyptic wasteland, but that happens. This is very different to that. They change the cause of the death of the X-Men into being one of Charles Xavier's episodes. That when, that as his mind deteriorates, when he uses his powers, it triggers a a, a brain seizure that causes things to go totally out of control unless he is given specific medication. It is an extension of his ability to freeze people in place Mm. with his mind. And this is what's so terrifying, ultimately, to me about telepaths. What happens when the most powerful mind on the planet starts eating itself? What, what, What happens when the feedback loop gets so loud that it starts tearing apart everyone else's mind as well? And it's certainly post-apocalyptic in that sense for the mutant characters in this film. Have they ever explored that idea in comics, to your knowledge? Has there ever been a storyline in not even just X-Men, but just in superhero comics in general where that has explored the idea of an aging telepath who uses con- loses control of their faculties? Not like this. To my knowledge, the only thing similar is not necessarily a degenerative brain disease, but someone like... David Haller, the Legion, who has multiple personalities and schizophrenia, and that has a direct impact on his powers. So... And he's Professor X's son, so, you know. Yeah. I think Charles Xavier in this movie is such a broken character because those were his students, the people who trusted him. Hmm. He was their... There was family. He was not just their teacher, he was their father figure. When other people had abandoned them, he was the person they went to. Apparently, in the original script, it was written as having flashbacks to that event, and you were going to see the X-Men die. But Mangold felt that it worked better if you didn't. If yeah. it was left as this sort of ambiguous Westchester incident that's that's mentioned every now and again. We never find out who died, how many died. We, we hear the number seven mentioned on, on the radio, but that's mentioned in it. It's like seven people died, including several of the X-Men. So we don't know whether that's yeah. seven X-Men or five X-Men and two civilians or whatever. But I think it's pretty clear from the state that Logan and Xavier in, are in at the start of the film that the bulk of the the core cast were taken out there. Hmm. Uh, Cyclops, Jean Grey, Storm, you know, these people who would stick with the Professor through thick and thin. Beast. They've got to be gone for this to be the state that that they're living in. And if you think about it, 
with with him having these seizures, what would happen to Cyclops when one of these things hits? Mm. His visor or his glasses might fall off, loses control. That t- that could take out Seven X Men. Well, like that Cyclops is already living life on the on the edge with that visor that doesn't seem to have anything that hooks over his ears. So <laughs> exactly, you don't want to put a chain on your glasses because you don't want to look lame, Scott. One, like one of those Zorro things that you tie behind your head. <laughs> Fasten it there, bud. Yeah, please. Or even like a full hood, like a Deadpool hood with the eyes being. He he eventually gets one of those in the comics. It's like in a, the visors are like an X pattern. That's when Cyclops yeah. went bad. Um, so why why did all of those people die? Scott didn't want to look like a dork. So so yeah, there's a lot of stuff in here that's not necessarily just about Professor X, although he he is part of it. But the Logan of it all as well, that it's about it's about age and it's about reaching the end of, of your life. It's about being closer to the end than you are at the beginning and the things that you lose along the way. And that's something that's so emotionally heady for this type of a movie to tackle. There really hasn't been tackled in any other movie that I can think of, any other superhero movie. Certainly not to this direct level and certainly not... With the the level of like what seventeen years of build up in history and movies, yeah. you know that the audiences has come along with these characters for these years for us to reach the end like this gives it added emotional impact that it wouldn't that it wouldn't have if it were just like I don't I don't know the, the second movie or the third movie or a standalone yeah. movie, you know it's it it brings our relationship with these characters full circle absolutely. Yeah. And they made those clear references to the previous films. When Charles Xavier is talking to Logan about Laura and Gabriella, he says, they're waiting for you at the Statue of Liberty. Mm. And there's that reference, there's the the shots that he's getting to repress his powers and to sedate him that bring to mind the shots that he was receiving in Days of Future Past. That would suppress Charles Xavier's powers. There's the bullet, the adamantium bullet, that Wolverine must have ended up with after X-Men Origins Wolverine. There's Caliban. Here's an interesting thing from the IMDb trivia. When Charles tells Logan that they will come for him at the Statue of Liberty, Logan mistakes it for the end battle in X-Men. But the hotel where Logan meets Laura for the first time is called the Liberty. Yeah. So that's there. This is taking a lot of cues from Westerns. It's taking a lot of cues from post-apocalyptic films. It feels like X-Men by way of something like Children of Men especially came to mind. Something like The Road or Mm. The Last of Us. That these are all films that sort of deal with on some level or another that same kind of relationship. The idea with an older man and a younger, normally woman, not necessarily the road was a, was a boy, but and a younger person who there's a commentary on the cynical, world-weary older person sort of coming to their own, dealing with their own problems that represent what's going on in the world more broadly. That's taking a lot yeah. of, of cues from that that are really interesting, like... I remember the first time I saw that Logan trailer. This was back before they announced that Last of Us TV show. They they were still t- yeah. threatening to make it into a movie. Like, Hugh Jackman looks exactly like Joel in yeah. the game. I mean, this basically is that story, sort of. Have you guys seen Children of Men? No, but I know about it. I know what the story is. We will absolutely be doing an episode on that, but 
it was it especially felt like Children of Men to me because of the dystopian overtones. In Children of Men, it takes place in a world where no child whatsoever has been born in something like 20 years. The human race is on the precipice of extinction. Older people are, of course, dying, and younger people, there's not enough of them anymore to properly run things in the way that it used to be run. And it's about Clive Owen's character coming across a pregnant woman, the first pregnant woman in decades, uh, and he has to transport her to safety. And, and it has that kind of like dystopian but not post-apocalyptic tone that Logan does, where everything is still functioning, but everybody is desperate and everybody... Sort of like the first Mad Max. Yeah, yeah. But like so much, like there is that I I found Children of Men to be much more disturbing than yeah. uh, than Mad Max because there's just a level of doom over the top of it that yeah. is it's very grey and very hmm. like depressed. It's a particular type of post-apocalyptic film. Yeah. It's during the apocalypse. It, it's during the collapse, and hmm. that's where we find the most doom because in a movie set squarely afterwards. Everything's already gone. It's also that specific type of doom where it's not a comet that's hit. It's not an alien invasion that's happened or a zombie uprising where over the course of a day or a week, everything changed. This is a gradual collapse that is taking years and years and years. And frankly, if the human race is going to die out, that's probably how it's going to go. Not like yeah. it, It's the knowledge mm. among all of the characters that they are at the end. That they can yeah. see the end in the distance coming towards them. And there's nothing they can really do about it. It's that feeling of doom, of helplessness, that this movie captures. And I, I think it's kind of like, there's probably some sort of university essay to be written about the proliferation of those kinds of stories in the 21st century. As global warming becomes a huge thing. As, yeah. uh, you know, we, we enter... The 21st century, 9-11 happens, terrorist cells, uh, all of these things that make the world seem less brighter than it used to, more greyer. The outlook seems bleaker than it did yeah. in the 1990s or the 1980s. And there's something to be, to be said for that kind of thing. Another interesting thing about Logan is the character yeah. of X-23, Laura. And at one point, Logan is going off on a, on how the comic books are lies. You read these in your spare time? Oh yeah, Charles, we got ourselves an X-Men fan. You do know they're all bullshit, right? I mean, maybe a quarter of it happened, and not like this. In the real world, people die, and no self-promoting asshole in a fucking leotard can stop it. This is ice cream for bedwetters. Logan. Your nurse has been feeding you some grade-aid bullshit. I don't think Laura needs reminding of life's impermanence. No child who can, like, cut someone's head off with their claws and throw it to a bunch of grown men needs to be told that, hey, yeah, uh, life sucks and death happens. And I, I find that thread of Logan talking about the yeah. comic books, the X-Men comic books. Daphne Keene is such a find, too. Yeah. Like, she takes control of that character in such a complete way. Considering her age, she she was twelve when they shot it, somewhere about there. For her to have that kind of of presence, that kind of like, I mean, she's being asked to to play a really complicated emotional uh, character. Yeah. That, that character is 
asked to carry some some pretty heavy ideas and thoughts. But not only that, she's being asked to go up against Hugh Jackman and Patrick Stewart for yeah. two hours. Like that's that's a tall order to ask a twelve year old girl who had not worked before in film. Her only role prior to this movie was seven episodes, a recurring seven episodes in a a BBC Worldwide series called The Refugees. That was her only job before that. And they, that, that casting is really clever. Her father is an actor, Will Keane. Her father is British um, and her mother is Spanish, which kind of explains how she plays this Spanish character here, but she's also the very British high society Lyra in the His Dark Material series on the BBC. Yeah. Like, that's that was her next big job. But her father's an actor named Will Keane, who you've seen in things. He played the Queen's private secretary in The Crown, things like that. TV stuff like the Wolf, like Wolf Hall, a lot of stuff on on British TV. So, so I suppose in that sense, she probably had some knowledge of the craft just from yeah. growing up in that. And you know, you got to imagine that she has has seen her father rehearse lines and has yeah. has maybe visited sets that he's been working on. But for for an actor to come into this this industry with this role almost cold, like those seven episodes of television notwithstanding, is a pretty big ask, a pretty broad accomplishment. Yeah. Any any professional actor who's in their 30s would have issues going up with on the same screen as Patrick Stewart and Hugh Jackman. They are two of the best actors working currently. And she does it brilliantly. Even Stephen Merchant has issues sometimes in this movie, and he does fantastic. He's a great actor, but Daphne Keene absolutely smashes it out of the park. And there was this thing on the on the special features of the disc where they showed her audition, where yeah. the character was not originally mute, and they talked about how they rehearsed this. The scene that they had have is is the scene in the car after. Yeah. Logan gets out of the veterinarian's he or the doctor's place or whatever it is. You're thinking of that scene in the Wolverine. Yeah, I am. Where he gets taken the to the doctor's place in this one. James Handy, character actor James Handy, who I always recognize. I'm like, hey, it's James Handy. It was that scene with them in the car there. That, that was yeah. their rehearsal scene. And they did it as scripted a few times. And then Daphne Keene, 11, 12 years old, says to James Mangold and Hugh Jackman, can I improvise on this next one? And they said, all right, sure. And instead of doing it as as planned, she did what she does in the movie, where she just starts screaming at Hugh Jackman in Spanish and gesturing at the map. And that was all unscripted and all of his, like, reactions, like trying to figure out what she meant. Like, yes, yes, I see where you're pointing on the map. Yes, it's not real. Like, that stuff. It was this, like, she just starts screaming at Hugh Jackman in Spanish. And the guts of that, for a 12-year-old to do that in an audition... But, like, it's such yeah. a smart call, too, and that ended up being the direction that they took the character. Yeah. It's, and it's a brilliant performance. Mm. What I was trying to get out with the, the commentary on comic books is less on the comics themselves, it's a commentary on hmm. stories. And how stories can provide hope in the bleakest situations. As it turns out, Eden, as a concept, is real. 
the Eden just happens to not be yeah. as it appears yeah. in the and book. We, we don't really get too much information, like we get them talking to people on the radio the night before they leave, but there's enough there to confirm to the audience that they're going to be okay at the end. Yeah. Because otherwise that would be like a real, like talk about a, a kick in the balls to like Logan and they off they go into some uncertain future. Are they just going to be shot in five minutes? Who knows? And it's, it is such a, interesting choice to have the x-men comics be in this world yeah like who licensed those who is the self-righteous dude person in the leotard that logan is talking about is it cyclops i they probably wouldn't have to license them the same reason our cartoon president gets away with it same reason like there are there are a series of noir crime books in which Barack Obama and Joe Biden team up to solve America's opioid epidemic. Like, if you're a public figure, like, it, it, it doesn't, like, that's a cool idea. And it seems like something that would happen mm. in the world, that if you had these kinds of people, then, then they would turn that into some sort of, like, there's the Mike Tyson mysteries where he solves mysteries with his pet pigeon or whatever. So, like, in those worlds, that sort of thing is going to happen. But it's been used as yeah. commentary on hope, and how hope is something... Hope is not something that you just come across. Hope is something you have to actively search for. It is an active mindset, not a passive one. Let's talk about Logan. Let's talk about where they take that character. That he enters this movie... He, he's dying. He's dying. Like yeah. his, his healing powers are leaving him. He's in constant pain. One of his claws isn't uh, ejecting out of his knuckles properly. He he just... He's got a, that cough. Which I'm, I'm assuming is all of the cigars that he smokes catching up to him now that he doesn't have healing powers. Mm. If that if that bit of a tree didn't get him, the cancers definitely mm. would have. But, like, his hair's going grey, too. He's getting old. He's dying. And... He's got scars, which would never have happened before. So... That's such an interesting place to take that character, that, that immortal character. And it's, again, James Mangold's severe dislike of the healing factor. His seeming obsession with having Hugh Jackman get the shit kicked out of him. Yes, R-rated hits. He's simply not as fast as he used to be. You see that in the opening fight, where he actually gets taken to the ground by a bunch of thugs. Mm normal people. He's no longer the best at what he does. He's trying to pull out the claw. I think it's arthritis, because they're bones, I don't know why he's just grabbing the blade like that. Like, why wouldn't you get an oven mitt or I something? Know, get a tea towel yeah. or something. <laughs> My mother is a fan of the X-Men films, and um, has been watching them basically as long as, as I have. I saw... The reason I even saw the X-Men movies when I was younger was I saw Lord of the Rings and Ian McKellen became my favourite actor, so I just started watching other Ian McKellen movies. But I was like the, what, the eight-year-old, the nine-year-old whose favourite actor was a 60-something Shakespearean English actor. <laughs> and that was the sole reason that I sought out the X-Men movies. But but anyways, my mother has been watching them along with me for as, for as long as I've been seeing them. And it's sort of like a thing where we've gone to all of the X-Men movies in cinemas since The Last Stand. So we went and we saw this one together as well. And walking out of it, my mother, who's not a fan of gore and blood in movies, mm. she said, I thought that was a bit much. And, and I said to her, well, think about it that you've seen, think about the kind of damage you've seen him take, you know? Think about 
all of the things that he's survived. He's been shot in the head. He's been stabbed. He's been, you know, cut up and half disintegrated, you know. After after 17 years of, of movies where he has that ability, you kind of need to see him take the hits to sell that he's not coming back yeah, from them anymore. Exactly. We mentioned in, in the last couple of episodes that their presentation of Logan, they always insist that he is less noble than he clearly is in these movies. That that in the previous Wolverine movies and previous X-Men movies, they talk a lot about he, how he's a lone wolf, how he doesn't work well with others, how he's antisocial, and that he's a, yeah. a, an anti-hero. And I've never bought it because he's he's been a particularly cuddly Wolverine for, for those previous films. Yeah. This movie is was where you see that. Every interaction he has with Caliban is bitchy. And... Like, Caliban is just being like... A year ago, you asked me to help you, and God knows I've tried. But I can't help you, Logan, not really, if you're not going to talk to me. I hear you at night, you're not sleeping. You don't want to talk about that. Or the booze you're drinking. Or the pus you're wiping away from your knuckles. Or the blood I wash from your clothes or the fresh wounds in your chest, the ones that aren't healing. And I'm pretty sure you don't want to talk about the fact that you can't read the label on that bottle. It says ibuprofen. The way that he sets it up gives him the the wrong medication so that he can point out that he can't read anymore without glasses. It even sort of extends to his relationship with Charles as well. He keeps taking the hits from him emotionally like where xavier keeps saying you're the one who puts me to sleep all of this stuff that would rip logan up inside to hear to see someone like xavier who's who is a father figure to him deteriorate like this and there's nothing he can do to stop it would absolutely kill logan on the inside and i think that is part of it the utter decimation of his people, in a, in an essence, is part of that. And Hugh Jackman gets to do such such emotional heavy lifting in this. Yeah. Where he has been an excellent action hero for all of these movies. Yeah. And he got to do a bit of dramatic, deeper stuff in The Wolverine. But here, he's not even really being asked to be an action hero anymore. He's being, no. he's being asked to be... A suicidal man who is dying already. He's being asked to suffer. Patrick Stewart as well, just extraordinary. The way that he... Mm. Uh, there's, there's something in particular about Xavier in this film that we have, every other time we've seen him, he's, he's always, especially the Patrick Stewart version of him, he has always been such a figure of authority. And so much, he's always had it so together. But he's always had that kind of... Power, you know, it's it's like when when Dumbledore comes into the room in Harry Potter, yeah. where it's like, okay, Dumbledore's here, everything's going to be fine. Like it, it's yeah. like that thing that J.K. Rowling used to say was every time she had exposition that she needed the readers to believe without question. The only two characters she could give it to were Dumbledore or Hermione, because everyone else was always second guessing, yeah. but those two characters were authority. And then when you find out that Dumbledore's dying. You start realizing that Dumbledore is a more complicated person than that. You start to realize they're not invincible. And and so giving this character of of such power and authority previously 
having him lose everything that made him that powerful, you know, his his intellectualism, his his serenity, his control, having him turn into the scared old man that he he is in this film that that Patrick especially in that first scene in what is it an overturned granary yeah grain storage overturned water yeah, tower something it looks like, like that 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 he's in there and i mean it's that that big circular thing with all of the shafts of light coming down through holes in it and it's meant like James Mangold's very upfront about this it's meant to mirror cerebro it's meant to mirror this yeah. sort of desiccated dark cerebro that that this is what his mind like is is like now. Instead of being able to reach out, it's meant to keep him in. But even like visually, like the fact that there are holes in it, you know. Mm. When when he has the seizures, it's absolutely terrifying to look at. I remember I remember seeing the trailer for the first time, and that shot when they're in the in Vegas in the hotel, and it's shot from his back, and he's having the seizure with the light coming from the window. That's a gorgeous shot, but it's it also scares the living shit out of me. That's a frightening thing. There was plans in the early scripting stages of bringing back other characters. Liev Schreiber was approached about the idea of having a brief appearance by Sabretooth in the film where he would help them get across state lines somewhere. The only other thing I can... Well, I can find two other things. One, Ian McKellen expressed an interest in returning. Two, another character, quote-unquote was considered to be running a mutant underground getting people across the Canadian border. Rogue? I I kind of wonder if that's if that was going to be Magneto. I could see that to get people yeah. out of the US. This land of top. I could have seen it being Rogue though because it's it would give those two characters a send-off because they have been so connected over the course of the films. I'm drawing the connection between um between Ian McKellen expressing interest in returning and that that's why I'm yeah. assuming it's probably it was Magneto but also and again I'm an Ian McKellen stan so of course I'm going to say I wish he was in this yeah. movie I wish he was in every movie every movie have the same problem and that is that there is not enough Ian McKellen in it but I think it would have been really interesting for an interaction between a 90-year-old Magneto and a 90-year-old Xavier in this mm. Xavier in this state as well. What might that have looked like? Yeah. What would Magneto's state be? But you could also get. I would imagine there there would have been something about the adamantium if that had been part of it as well. That yeah. Magneto might have been the one that that told him that it was poisoning his body instead of the the yeah. doctor, which you already suspect. But anyway. Yeah, but Caliban could sort of smell it. On him. Caliban's an interesting sort of character for this. Caliban's a deep cut to the X-Men comics. Caliban is a very... A minor character in a lot of stories. He basically functions as a... As Caliban in this film very concisely put it, he's a truffle pig for mutants. He can track them down. He can sort of get a sense to what for what yeah. their power is. But other than that... It, his power comes with a trade-off. Sensitivity yeah. to sunlight. Or any direct And he's briefly in Apocalypse as well. Yeah. Yes. But this is yeah. uh, significantly different. And he's become British. <laughs> yeah. They also say that Caliban, in this film, used to be working yeah. with the Reavers. With Donald Pierce and the Doctor, Xander Rice. And that... 
that implies a very interesting history that the one person Logan could go to was someone who was an enemy. It's almost stated by Caliban, basically, that that part of this is his trying to redeem himself that you you get. Yeah. Stephen Merchant is brilliant in this. Like, he's really brilliant Oh, absolutely. And I, it yeah. was such a weird casting choice when I first heard it. Because, it was. I mean, he is so... He is so known for comedy, and he's so known yeah. for you know that that p- particular brand of sort of I don't know n- neurotic kind of character. Yeah, he, and you're also used to him being a writer, less a writer more than he is an mm. actor. You usually think, oh, he's that funny guy who works with Ricky Gervais. He writes a lot of comedy stuff, but. And usually you see him in small cameos and things like The Invention of Lying. But in this, he's doing a very, very good dramatic performance where when he has to seem like he's in a great deal of pain, he looks like he's in a very severe amount of pain. He was the creator of the original UK The Office. He was a producer on the US version of The Office. He created that Ricky Gervais series Extras. He's working on a new series which has got a two season order called The Offenders, which is about seven strangers from different walks of life forced together to complete a community payback sentence in Bristol. He's also starring in that as is Christopher Walken. He also produced Life is Short, the series with Warwick Davis. He is one of the co hosts, I guess you could call it, on an Idiot Abroad, which follows Carl Pil- Pilkington, obviously. But but when you see him on screen, he is always appearing in comedies, almost always. Yeah. Like, like turning up in Jojo Rabbit to play this very strange yeah. SS officer. Oh, that was fantastic. He does very well in this as Caliban, but that's going to be my favourite performance mm. of his. But, like, like that's what yeah. he normally does. So when he turns up in, in this... In and he's doing really heavy dramatic stuff. The way that he just the looks that he gives as Boyd Holbrook is taunting him, talking to him, mm. like the the looks that he gives mm. after he's been tortured. The way that he just looks so physically shattered, and it's it's a great supporting cast too. I mean, we already mentioned Richard E. Grant, but mm. Boyd Holbrook, the sort of the cheerful amiability of that character. That yeah, is kind of the way he's like as I live and breathe. The Wolverine. And he's a junkie now. Yeah, the way that he's kind of like chuffed that he's talking to Wolverine. It's like... Jeez, Wolverine seeing you like this just breaks my damn heart. The interesting thing about the character of Donald Pierce is that he's from a group of anti-mutant mercenaries called the Reavers. The Reavers are an Australian group of mercenaries who have augmented themselves with cybernetic limbs, other enhancements of that sort. And this is an adaptation of that for sure. And Boyd Holbrook does a really good job. I'm excited to see him in the Sandman series, because he's playing a character called the Corinthian. And that character is so, so interesting. So they also introduce another character in this movie, X-24, which is a clone of Wolverine. This X-24 is an adaptation and merging of two characters from the comics. The first is an android Wolverine called Albert, 
who was created by Donald Pierce to hunt down Wolverine and frame him for crimes and stuff like that. The other character is Dakin, the son of Wolverine. And he's a much more vicious character than Wolverine ends up being in the comics. He has an attitude problem and a lot of that sort of thing. X-24 appears like a a younger Mm. Hugh Jackman. In reality, what Hugh Jackman probably just looked like when they were filming the movie. Because he's been aged with the hair and makeup and stuff. I've got to say that this whole evil clone thing is the one part of the movie that I'm like... Did we need this? I, I I understand it thematically. I understand thematically that it works that as this, this dying, weakening Wolverine fights to survive, that he'd be matched with what he used to be, like this berserk, immortal, unstoppable version of himself. And the interesting thing with that is, Transigen has merged with yeah. Alkali, which is a word that carries a lot of weight in this franchise. And... The technology they're using to control X-24 is the same thing that they put in Deadpool's head in X-Men Origins Wolverine. They can see through his eyes and direct him where to go. Xander Rice is the son of one of the people who put the adamantium in Logan. That's, that is a great little beat where he's like, Leave it in you, my soul, on the Weapon X program. He's the asshole. Put this poison in me. Yes, he wants me. And then you'll have to kill him. I, th- I think you're right. X-24 is like, boiled down everything bad that ever happened to him. Sure. But at the same time, I kind of feel like in this hyper-realistic movie... To bust out the evil clone thing, it felt like a little... It felt jarring. You know what like I would have preferred? Transigen managed to capture Sabretooth. Yes, I... Victor Creed. I was you get Leaf Schreiber there. back, but he has gone feral mm. under their sort of watch. They've been pumping him with that green shit. They, pu- they, they put adamantium on him, and they, 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 they lobotomize him so that they control his movements and shit. Let, let's talk about that whole farm sequence. Yeah. Mm. That along the road, they run into Eric LaSalle and his family. Eric LaSalle played Dr. the no-nonsense Dr. Benton on ER for many years, which is where I know him from. He's primarily a director now. If you've watched network television in the last 10 years, you've probably seen episodes directed by Eric LaSalle. In fact, Logan is his last acting credit. Uh, he, he hasn't acted since... He acted sporadically leading up to that, if I just find his, his IMDb. So he was in a few episodes... Un- he was in Coming to America. He's in a few episodes of Under the Dome. He did an episode of Angie Tribeca, the, where they did parodies of medical shows, like nothing Noah Wiley was, it was one in one-hour photo? He played UN Secretary General in two episodes of 24. But other than that, he hasn't really done much of note since leaving ER. He had 171 episodes on ER, so he was there for quite a while. But he's a he's a director now. He's directed episodes of Chicago Med, of Chicago Lucifer. PD, Lucifer, Once Upon a Time, Librarians, The Night Shift, Madam Secretary. He's a producer on Chicago PD. So. I got to admit, I felt, and I knew that that Eric Lasalle wasn't really acting very much anymore. So I got to admit that it kind of felt a little surprising um, to see him in this movie, especially in such a prominent role. 
And to the point that I actually was like, did, was he like, cause, cause James Mangold is like a, a, a directed the pilot episodes of a few television series that didn't end up going anywhere. And it's like, was like Eric LaSalle in the pilot episode or like a producer on one of those. And that's how they know each other. But, but no, it appears to just be a coincidence. Anyway, I know that you've all, you're all riveted hearing my discussions about Eric LaSalle and his career, but that whole sequence where, where they come across, I suppose the kind of warmth and traditional family life that, that they kind of had an approximation of back in the expansion that, I mean, Xavier has that line, you know, this is what life looks like. People who love each other. Yeah. It's a nice little human reprieve. moment. Reprieve. And it lets them it lets them soften us up a bit so that they can totally tear our hearts out. Yeah. Almost literally. And it's the only time where Wolverine actu- where Logan actually smiles in the whole film, if you notice. He only smiles three times in the whole movie, according to IMDb. No, someone apparently sat there and looked for it, but... Alright, so there's one when he's in the limo, driving that bridal party around. There's the scene here in the dinner scene. And then there's at the end, when he's dying. Yeah. You get that... And you, you get the little bit of futureness with these giant automated farming pieces of farming equipment that are, and like mm. Eric LaSalle. Automated trucks. Eric LaSalle is the last holdout and this, this big farming company is kind of, you know, threatening him to get him to, to sell out. But he won't do it, man. Yeah. It's not going to be part of your system. But he, it's like this sort of, this traditional all-American kind of family you know yeah. on the farm you know mum dad son they all like each other they're all like no one's arguing or yelling at each other it, it's this moment they're nice it's this moment of humanity and sort of i don't know gentleness that the movie has totally lacked at that point so that when richard e grant and boyd holbrook come along and sick evil clone logan on the place it's like shattering and the way that they do it, yeah. the way that they frame it, that Patrick Stewart gets that monologue that he says when he thinks it's Logan who's walked into the room. You know, Logan, this was, without a doubt, the most perfect night I've had in a very long time. But I don't deserve it. Do I? I did something, something unspeakable. I've remembered what happened in Westchester. This is not the first time I've heard it. Until today, I didn't know. You wouldn't tell me. So we just kept on running away from it. I think I finally understand you. Logan. And he 
doesn't understand and we don't necessarily understand at that point. Maybe some of us have got a bad feeling about this, but it's it's we're meant to think at this point that it's still Logan. So yeah. when Patrick Stewart gives that extraordinary monologue, for him to just be suddenly stabbed through the chest and then it just mm-hmm. keeps popping off. That teenage son, he's dead. The wife, yeah. dead. And and the way that it sort of... The husband lost a little longer, but he just ends up dead. And then the way that, like, it plays like a horror movie. It plays like yeah. a slasher film. It, it's, it's really disturbing. And then at the end, when Eric LaSalle crashes Clone Wolverine into the Thresher, and then he gets out and points the gun at Logan, and he fires. Yeah. It, 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 it's, it's empty. But he fires, like... He doesn't under he never never understands. None of them ever do what is happening to them. Yeah. What what is why this has happened. From his point of view, this is just this this monstrous occurrence that has invaded his life, killed his whole family, and he takes the shot at the end and immediate and the last thing he experiences in life is is realizing that he's unsuccessful he doesn't have any ammo left and then he dies like there's something so brutal about that and the way that it's and, and the simple fact that like he he already hit x24 with the car and put him into the thresher and he still turns and he sees logan the guy who saved his life who couldn't have possibly been the one to kill his family but he is so out of it. He doesn't know what the fuck's it's so going on. Stricken. Like they look yeah. exactly the same. They've both got metal claws. Wolverine didn't mention Logan didn't mention that at the dinner table. Um, and it, no. it's just this. It's just this sort of nightmarish scene in the in the middle of the film that is so striking. And of course, then you get Patrick Stewart hanging on long enough to talk about the boat before he dies. Sunseeker. What? Which, that's a great name for the boat, because that is basically what they are in this movie. They're sun seekers. They're looking for a place where they can lie down and rest, for God's sake. Where they don't have to hide from people. That was... One of two moments, the other being Wolverine's death, which I would like to get to in a moment. We're watching it this time, back to back to back, all of these movies. That really landed for me this time. Yeah. I was thinking at the end of Days of Future Past, where Wolverine's talking to Professor X in the in the office, the study. Professor X just goes, ever want to get into sailing? You and me, Logan, I think we need to get a boat. I'm not feeling too well. But it's, it's, it's the kind of... He's confused at the end too. Like you never really, yeah. You never really know. Does he quite put it together that it wasn't Logan who stabbed him? I mean, Logan is saying it wasn't yeah. me. It wasn't me. But, Charles, but he's not even sure. Charles isn't really there anymore at that point. No, no. And it's just such a a sad, vulnerable way for that particular character to exit the world. Yeah. That after seventeen years and. What? How many appearances did he have? One, two, three, Future Past, Wolverine, X-Men Origins, Wolverine. And that's when you get into the, the McAvoy stuff. You can add a, add first class to that. For for that to be the conclusion for that character, a char- and, and putting, just saying personally, this is, you know, this is a, a character and a franchise that I've followed since I was prepubescent. Yeah. 
you know. Th- since we were children. There's something desperately sad about that. Yeah. Since we were children, two of the constants in our sort of media life has been Hugh Jackman as Wolverine and, you know, him as Charles Xavier. Before we talk about Logan's death scene, I want to talk about the scene where he finally gets to let loose. Hold on, no. The way that Caliban gets oh, his yeah. a little bit of revenge. Beware, Beware the, the light. light. I, I think that's that line didn't really land for me because I think it is kind of it's a very written line. It's a very yeah. like I I first of all I don't think that that's something that Broy Holbrook's character would just say in conversation. I don't think he would phrase it that way. Um, I I feel th- that to me felt a little too theatrical. Um, I'm, I don't have a problem with him saying something, echoing it earlier, but I just felt beware the light to be kind of an archaic phrase. I think it was more that's part of, you know, Pierce being a little bit bigoted towards mutants, that a mutant's mother would phrase it in such a, I guess, paleolithic way. Well, I, I, I don't see it as a example of his bigotry. He might have heard that that's something that he's said before. Pierce clearly has been paying attention to these X-Men, these mutants, his entire life. So he's probably heard about Caliban, and that being one of the things that he may have said in the past. Mm. Or maybe that was his catchphrase. Or maybe he's read the reports of how Caliban was treated as a child. And there's an an extension to this sequence on the DVD, on the Blu-ray where Caliban yeah. is not killed in the explosion, and Wolverine finds him lying, burned in a ditch. He says nothing, he just kind of gasps for 15 seconds or so, and then dies. And I'm just kind of like, well, it was a, that was a good call, getting rid of that, because that's kind of just like the suffering on top. Adding vinegar to the wound. Yeah, it's just like, oh, he's not dead. Like, imagine if that had been like, Everyone's dead. The whole family's dead. Eric LaSalle's dead. Patrick Stewart is dead. You know, Wolverine is badly hurt. X-23 is is crying, is hysterical. And then on top of that, we've got to sit and watch Stephen Merchant splutter in the dirt for 15 seconds before he dies. Like, it's, <laughs> it would have been too much. How many times can you kick us while we're down? <laughs> that's, that's when it crosses the line. You see that? Yeah. He's the source of comedy in the film. Yeah? You, you want to know what I did to him? I blew his legs off and then made him choke on his own blood in the dirt. I don't know if he's the source of comedy, would you say? I think in a lot of ways Xavier is, kind of. Yeah. The, the, Xavier and X-23, but only in the manner in which they interact with Logan. Yeah. That the, Their particular personalities bouncing off of the grumpy Logan that we've got here. That's that's mm. what creates comedy, if there is any. I love that. If there is any. If, if you can any. consider of, anything funny in this movie. It's like Richard E. Grant just comes along and does his Richard E. Grant thing too. And Richard E. Grant oh, always yeah. gets 100%. a laugh. Effortless laugh, no matter what he does. So Yeah, and... They eventually get Laura to the other kids that have escaped. Then when they're Hold trying on. to cross the border... D- didn't you want to talk about him absolutely losing his mind on the car? <laughs> oh, I thought when you said letting loose, you meant at the end with all of the soldiers. That's what I mean. Yeah. After that... Oh, I thought you were talking about after they bury Charles. Like, he says that bit where he's like... water water.
and he can't yeah. he can't eulogize yeah. Xavier. He can't put into words how he feels about this man who gave him his past back. That almost got me too. Like, but... like Xavier was the man who brought him back from the brink. As Xavier points out in Logan, in, in, in earlier in this film, when we found you, you were a cage fighter, begging for scraps, basically. And Xavier's the man who gave him a family, gave him his life back, basically showed him what happened to him, gave him a chance to be something more than just a violent beast. Although, as we've said before, he's, you know, a bit cogent for a wild beast. And now he's dead. Logan can't put it into words, so he has to put it into actions, and he beats the living hell out of the car and falls unconscious. And this is just the way that my brain works, but sometimes it can kind of, like work against me sometimes watching movies because I have a very logical brain almost to the point of being pedantic where I'm watching that scene and there's the guy off with his dog like across mm. the across the way I'm like you seriously can't hear Hugh Jackman screaming at the top of his lungs and then what's he going to do when he finds the the car gone he's going to call the cops cops are going to come out they're going to look at the area hmm this looks like a freshly dug grave <laughs> <laughs> Who's this? Oh, this is Charles Xavier. He's that guy from the comic books and from the news all of those times. Wasn't he missing in conjunction with the Westchester incident? Mm. It's like, oh my god, it looks like he's been stabbed with three metal... three me- three knives. Hmm. Who do we know who has something next to knives? Three claws. Boom. The, um... Logan was never getting the Sunseeker. Right. I- I'm not normally... One of those people who is like, oh, trailers give away everything. You know, I normally think that's pretty overblown. But they gave away too much in the Logan trailer. They have shots of Wolverine and X-23 standing, looking sadly down at the ground while Wolverine holds a shovel and his his hands are covered in dirt. Like, hmm, where's Xavier? Like, where's he gone? He just rolls into the frame. It's like, wow. Having to bury that body, huh? But it's like telegraphing. It's like they did it in Days of Future Past as well, where they have the shot in the trailer of the Sentinel coming up behind Storm, and it cuts away just before the blade goes through it. But, like, even watching that trailer then, I was like, it's just like you've shown it too late, you know? She can't move away from the point she's at. She's clearly going to get stabbed. (laughs) Like, Mm. yeah. Let's get to that finale. And Yeah, so... They get Laura to the rest of the kids that have escaped the transigent facility. As they're trying to cross the border, the Reavers arrive and start capturing them. But Wolverine found some of the, the green... They gave it to him. ...adrenaline stuff. He takes it with him. He injects himself. Then we get some pure Wolverine action. Going completely overboard. Doing those really rad team-up moves with... X-23. You get some good, like, other mutant power stuff from the kids as well, Mm. that they sort of take that opportunity to do some R-rated stuff with the superpowers that they wouldn't have been able to do in in another movie. Like, the breathing frost on the person's arm, smash. Mm. A dude explodes. Yeah. Or the way that, like, Boyd Holbrook goes out, writhing on the ground as all of these mutant children use their powers on him simultaneously. And I mean, why wouldn't they? From everything that we've got from Pierce shows him to be an uncaring, unfailing piece of shit. Like, in the footage that Gabriella took of inside the Transigen facility, 
he comes in when they're having a birthday party and he's like, no, no birthdays. And clearly he was a piece of shit to them. And and Xander just gets shot in the head. <laughs> shot in the neck. Yeah. I love how it cuts off his evil monologue. We get that final fight, big fight against uh, X-24. Where we get the use of the adamantium bullet that ties off that little subplot. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's that's the scene. Like, again, I just keep giving you guys work. Put in a clip of it here where that that scene where he's asked about the bullet and he just sort of says, You know what it is? It's made out of adamantium. That's what they buy inside of us. That's why it can kill us. Probably what's killing me now. a long time ago and I kept it as a reminder of what I am. Now I keep it to, uh, actually I, uh, I was thinking of shooting myself with it, like Charles said. Like, like the yeah. way that he sort of just matter-of-factly s- states it, that's like really, that's again another great... Like, he starts, he starts saying something, and then he sort of catches himself, and it's like, why am I lying? Yeah. What's the point of lying? I was actually thinking of killing myself with the, that. The, that's such another, it's another great moment for Jackman that he gets, he gets to do so yeah, much... Because he played... So much detail. He plays it as fed up. Hmm. But, and like, it's got to be kind of... It's got to be a brutal thing for him, too, as an actor, to see off a character like that. Oh, yeah. Like, 17 years is a long time to do anything. But in, in, in acting, 17 years playing the same character is an extraordinarily long period of time. Like, Absolutely. nobody, like, at, I mean, at most, you, you maybe you get 10 years out of a TV show or, or a successful film franchise, but for, for Hugh Jackman to have been... Like, it was the role that made his career. It was a role that to hear him talk about it, he has a very personal connection to. He's been playing it for most of his career. I think, like... Kids probably see him on the street and say, that's Wolverine. I think, like, at the time, he had played... He he held the record for most appearances as the one superhero. I think that has since been passed by Robert Downey Jr. Mm. But um, that's got to be tough for him to... Not only say goodbye to the character, but in the way the way that he did as well. Yeah, in those kinds of scenes, like Patrick Stewart as well. Patrick Stewart, I mean, he said in an interview that he was open to the idea of doing more with Professor X if someone asked him. But after he saw Logan and saw that ending of Professor X, he decided that no, that was it. That wasn't going to get yeah. any better than that. I mm. I don't fully believe either of them when they say that they're not going to play those characters again. Again. With the whole multiverse thing, I wouldn't be thoroughly unsurprised if we got a cameo or two from from the original X-Men cast to kind of help bridge mutancy into the MCU. But it really is a great send-off for Wolverine, especially yeah. that final line. Like, again, clip of it here. Whoever thought of that line... <sighs> Yeah. <sighs> 
I mean, mm. give that guy a raise, a corner office, like... Let him do the movies from now on. Yeah, like, that's there is, beautiful. There's so much that can be interpreted from that line. Is it, is this what being a father feels like? Is this what... Having a family feels like. Having a like. family feels like? Is this what being happy feels like? Is this, this what... Dying feels like. I think like. it's. I I read it as dying. I didn't read it as any of those other things. But it's just like, like, what do you give as the last line to someone immortal, someone who could never die and finally is? Like that's yeah. that is a perfect line for a character like that to go out on. Yeah, and the way that Jackman sort of chuckles it almost. Yeah, is. I said, you know, that there were the two moments that that get me. It's the farmhouse sequence, and it's this. And there's the line that is sort of referenced in this moment from the Wolverine, where I forgot which character it was. The one who can see the future says to him, It's you on your back. There's blood everywhere. You're holding your own heart in your hand. And he, and he does. You can tell that this ending was what Mangold had in mind the whole time. Or at least or at least he was able to spin it. Yeah. Yeah. That way. Um and that the shot too, the last shot where Laura moves the cross onto its side so that it's an X instead. Um Yeah. And how one of the kids is holding a Wolverine action figure mm. in the yellow outfit, which we never got to see Hugh Jackman wear. Laura has that monologue that she heard in that from that movie. Shane. In the hotel. A man has to win what he is, Joey. Can't break them all. There's no living with the killing. There's no going back. Right or wrong, it's a brand. A brand that sticks. Now you run on home to your mother. You tell her everything's alright. There are no more guns in the valley. Which just really finalizes the moment that Wolverine is at peace. His brand over his centuries of life, and it is certainly centuries at this point, the violence that he has lived with, for all of it, it's over. He can be he can be asleep now. He can rest. In any case, I think we've pretty much reached the end of our discussion here, unless there's... And we've made everyone depressed. Yes. Well, no. 20th Century Fox made everyone depressed. That that is canonically how the X Men film franchise ends. Everybody is dead. Mutants are on the verge of extinction, and these children are on the run from sinister forces who will no doubt pursue them long after they make it over the Canadian border. S- See you later, everyone. Yeah, Sin- <laughs> exactly, Lawson. Sinister forces. Wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. That's a reference to Mister Sinister. Uh, that's that's been my one great letdown with these X-Men movies, especially how they ended. They said first, uh, John Hamm's gonna play Mr. Sinister. Uh, perfect. That is excellent. And then, Antonio Banderas might play Mr. Sinister. Uh, brilliant. But no, we don't get that. I don't get my Mr. Sinister. All I get is an Essex Corporation tease during New Mutants. 
thank you. Thank you very much. In any case, let's move on to the IMDb Parents Guide. There is not really anything funny here, but there are a couple of things of note. First off, just something that just struck me as being wrong. Overall, it's one of the most violent movies to release in the 2010s. No. In the grand scheme of every movie. Every horror movie, even. No. No, the 2010s was like the rise of torture porn, wasn't it? No, that was the 2000s. Like, that was Saw in 2004, Hostel. But some Saw movies still <laughs> came out. Well, yeah, but what wouldn't call it the rise of... The petering out. were like the, the rise of the premium horror movie. It follows Hereditary, Midsummer. Yeah. Um, apparently 76 people die on screen in this. Okay, what was your favourite kill? Mine was the one who gets... When they're in the hotel where he, he jabs the blades through the guy who's standing next to the door. Mm. That was cool. Mine would have to be X-24s. Mm. Yeah. I, li- I like the guy that gets frozen and shattered. Yeah. And, and lastly, uses of Spanish insults most non-Spanish speakers won't understand. Sure. <laughs> I suppose you've got to put it in there, don't you? I guess. And, I mean, yes, there are uh, people who speak Spanish, so naturally. In any case, let's move on to who our MVP is and what our favorite scene or sequences are for this movie. I will start us off, and I'll talk about my MVP. I mentioned last week that I was gonna, ha- I, I was gonna have real trouble with this because there are two performances that I would really love to highlight, and I was trying to figure out a way where I can somehow justify calling one of them the MVP of Days of Future Past so I could give the other one the win here, but I couldn't manage it. So instead, I'm going to have to pick. I'm, of course, referring to the Hugh Jackman, Patrick Stewart performances. And the way I really came down on it was, I think Hugh Jackman was extraordinary. I think Patrick Stewart should have been nominated for an Oscar. So Mm. under that reasoning, I got to go with Patrick Stewart. The way that he, the way that he brings that character to a conclusion, the way that he takes that character of authority of of command and gives him that vulnerability, that sadness, that weakness. He lost a lot of weight for this film. It was the first time in his life that he's ever actually lost weight, apparently intentionally, because he's always been you know, that that general weight his whole life. But he lost 21 pounds. And when he's being carried around by Hugh Jackman, Hugh Jackman's actually carrying Patrick Stewart around the place. So there's there's just, it's just a beautiful, sad, bittersweet end to this character, that final scene of him talking about the Sunseeker. I mean, I've got to go with him. As much as it pains me to have to skip over Hugh Jackman in all of these three X-Men movies, you see, if I hadn't been told that, if I had been told beforehand that I wasn't going to be able to pick Ian McKellen twice, then I would have given Hugh Jackman the first movie, Ian McKellen the second, and Hugh Jackman and Patrick Stewart this, but such is life. My favourite scene or sequence is, you might be able to predict it if you've listened to what I've been saying this whole time, it's the farmhouse sequence. That whole section from the moment that X-24 enters and stabs Xavier right through to Xavier dying after the dust has settled. It's just... it's The movie turns so high intensity. It becomes a horror movie. It becomes this unrelenting 
shocking piece of filmmaking that is the most the most emotionally brutal stuff that the X-Men franchise has ever done and it culminates in a really beautiful death scene for one of the main characters so I got to go with that like when I think of Logan I hadn't seen it I hadn't seen it since cinemas rewatching it this time but when I thought of it in the interim the stuff that I remember is always from the farmhouse I don't think very much about the beginning or the end I think a lot more about that farmhouse. I think for me, I'm going to give my MVP award to Daphne Keene. This is an exceptional performance from an exceptional young actor. She manages to carry the ferocity of the character, the pathos of the character, and the general Hugh Jackmanness of the character. She is a little Logan, basically. And it's just such a phenomenal performance. She brought so much of herself into the performance as well where as you were talking about earlier that improvised absolute just torrent of words that she says to Hugh Jackman it's just a brilliant star making performance and I can tell that she's gonna have a long career ahead of her because it it can only she can only get better from here and I think she, she got the lead in an HBO and an HBO BBC production coming off of yeah, this. Yeah, exactly. And I haven't seen his Dark Materials. I barely remember the Golden Compass as it is, but I know that this is a bit gonna be a big deal and has been a big deal. I think for my favorite scene, I'm it's it's difficult because favorite scene implies enjoyment. When this is, it's a very great movie, but it's it's harrowing at the same time. It's gripping. It's compelling. It's not. It's it's yeah. it's something you have to brace yourself for. It's not like, hey everyone, let's sit down and and eat popcorn and watch Logan. You know. I think my favorite scene, or I think the best scene, is the scene after the farmhouse where he's buried Charles. Just the way that that scene is acted, the way that it, the way it looks, the fact that Laura tries to emulate what she saw in those mannequins in Vegas, that image of the father-daughter relationship, and Logan just shakes her head away and tries to leave without her because he's so emotionally distraught. I think that's just a brilliantly acted scene with very little dialogue. Well, I have to give it to Hugh Jackman. He has done a hell of a job over this entire franchise, and to finally reach a sort of catharsis at the end, bring Logan to that place where he can pass with peace, is such an amazing journey for any act. Like you said, 17 years. It's it's just incredible. Very rarely do you get the opportunity as an actor to be able to do that. He has brilliant moments in this film. And it's... I can't say it's a shame that this is the last one. Because it is so it's good. It's a shame that it isn't the last one. <laughs> no, for him. Yeah. Yeah. It's... This is the ending he always needed as Wolverine. And you know, how great is it that, like... Could you imagine in 2000 when this movie came out that, that they would be able to make that movie, you know? Just that yeah. the way that superhero cinema has evolved in the interim... That we can even have a movie like that. I mean, yeah. that's 
that's great. Yeah. It is. It shows how seriously audiences take this stuff. Shows how seriously filmmakers take this stuff. Some filmmakers. They say something about the human condition. They Yeah. If you say that these movies are nothing but fluff, you are basically deriding an entire type of fiction. You're saying that graphic novels and comic books are not a valid form of literature. To to say that these only serve an entertainment purpose limits your audience. And Logan is the perfect example of the fact that audiences are mature enough and filmmakers are mature enough that the genre is mature enough. There's something interesting that I, I remember hearing James Mangold say on the interviews on the behind-the-scenes footage. He said that, that once everyone decided that it was an R-rated movie, all of a sudden it wasn't the violence that changed everything. It was the fact that you were no longer writing a movie for teenagers and for children that that you yeah. you no longer had to had to aim at them as being the the lowest IQ of, of the audience you know you, you yeah. didn't have to make it child friendly so you could have scenes that went on for longer you could have scenes that were just people talking and getting into ideological ideas and and arguments and things but- the idea that there were children being experimented yeah. You could be slower, but not not even that, but like you could be slower. You could have quieter scenes. You can have all of that stuff between Professor X and, and Logan that, you know, if you're making a traditional PG-13 super, superhero movie, you're, you're kind of like, all right, let's get to the next action sequence after a little while because the 12-year-olds in the audience are getting a bit antsy with all this talking. My favorite scene is Logan's death. It's the finality. And as a comic book reader, you don't get finality. You simply don't. These characters always have to get rolled back to status quo at some point. Because that's what that medium is. In film, you need to find the moment to stop. You need to find an ending. For a character, at least. And this was the ending that The only ending that was going to make sense. So, Lawson, what have we got next week? Hopefully something a little happier. Ah! It's it, it's pulpier. It's it's more exciting. It's more uh, it's less depressing. Let's put it that way. We will be watching the two thousand political drama, The Contender. It is a could have been a contender. It is has some stuff that will be interesting to discuss in the current context of things, but it also is very much a movie of its time being immediately post-Clinton impeachment. So so there's some, some interesting things to discuss there, uh, and it's just a brilliantly written script from a guy who I talked about a few weeks ago, did a movie called Deterrence that I talked about, the one where there's, there's, the president is stuck in the... Uh, in the diner oh, yeah. and has to deal with this situation abroad while he's snowed in. It's the same director and writer. Like, it's the same guy. He, This was what he did with his success from that. And so if anyone would like to watch along at home, it is available for rental or purchase on the YouTube store. However, only in standard definition. That's it, full stop. You can't find it anywhere else unless, like me, you were wanted to purchase a digital versatile disc but, or digital video disc. I don't know How what it is. How versatile is uh, it? Well, I, I had to track it down. I imported it because I couldn't find an Australian one. And the, the copy that I have is so old that on the special features tab on the back 
back of the box, they're advertising interactive menus as a special feature. Shit. As, a, Yikes. as opposed to all of those non-interactive menus, which I'm pretty sure is just a still image <laughs> at that point. Jesus, so this was probably like first, second wave of DVDs. I think this is a DVD that, I think this is the DVD that it, the original run <laughs> when it came out of theatres. So it's at oh, least 20 years old, I think. Treasure that. That is an artifact. Hey, at least <laughs> it's in widescreen. <laughs> at least I don't have to watch yeah, it in a physical... box like I did that, yeah. that <laughs> goofy movie or The Abyss. When physical media dies, that that DVD will belong in a museum. It belongs in a museum! If you want to reach us, you can find us at our blogs. You can find Lawson at X with Daily Candy County. You can find John and myself at On the Bright Side. You can also reach us through our Twitter. That's the best place to give us episode-specific feedback and also give John and I suggestions. You can also comment, like, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. I'm not sure how the commenting works on other you know, platforms, but on Apple Podcasts, the commenting is for the show on the whole. I've heard that that's very good for audience engagement, because as of the year 2021, we all live under an algorithm that determines whether or not we get noticed. So... We have to please the robots. Yes. Yes, we do. Anyway, I have been Holly Lewis. And I've been Lawson Keeney. I have been, and I will continue to be Jean Lewis. Bad shit happens to people like him. I am still right here. And you could have it all. My empire of dirt. I will let you down.